When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We turn now to who many are calling the most hated man in America. Martin Shkreli, the pharmaceutical company CEO. He once jacked up the price of a life-saving drug. He was sentenced today for cheating wealthy investors out of millions. Poke me, be careful how you poke and where you poke and how you do it, because I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. The way the law is constructed is they push a button and you're found guilty. That's it. We turned it from three million to something like half a billion to a billion. Why is it do you think that you lean into this like evil person role and you seem to like enjoy it? Ego is the fountainhead of all progress. You know, I think ultimately without a little bit of ego and without a little bit of competition and competitiveness, nothing would happen. What was your initial reaction going to jail? The real scary part is that Martin Scarelli, thank you so much for coming on the Iced Coffee Hour podcast. For a little introduction, if you guys don't know, you purchased a life-saving drug and raised the price of it 5,000% overnight. You bought a unique copy of the Wu-Tang Clan album for $2 million, and you refused to release it. You have beef with both Hillary Clinton and Ghostface Killa. You're banned from Twitter. You started a company that went to $1 billion at 28 years old. You're a convicted felon and have spent four years in prison. Hundreds of headlines have been ran by mainstream media saying you're the most hated man in America, and now you're making a comeback. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. So that's a brief CV. Uh... Would you say it's somewhat accurate? I think you, could, you caught most of it, yeah. <laughs> you were just saying something about when you went to go shoot with Tucker Carlson, you're on probation. Right. And that has certain restrictions. And apparently you left the state, which you're not allowed to do without letting them know. They obviously, they saw the Tucker Carlson right. podcast. Right. What happened with that? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's not abnormal to slip up uh, when you're on probation. There's actually like a list of rules that you have to follow. And, you know, I, I hesitate to say it's, probation, the whole idea and institution is kind of useless because it, it does serve some value. But it's hard for the people who do probation to keep up with all of the people that they have to follow. Mm -hmm. And I think some of these people sometimes have so many probation officers might have 50 or 100 or 200 people that they're monitoring. And it's, you know, they can't, they obviously can't monitor their every step. And I think that in a lot of ways that nullifies kind of the benefits of it, which is, hey, you just got out of jail. You don't want to go back into a life of crime. We want to make sure that, you know, you get a job and you do this and you do that and you kind of get on the straight and narrow again, which inevitably fails. Uh, unfortunately, uh, recidivism is, is quite high. Um, most people who go to jail go, go back, if not straight back. Sometimes I, I had a story about a guy, we called him Michael Goonberg in JL. He was funny. Um, and Goonberg, great name, right? Uh, <laughs> what, what, did, what did he do? Goonberg was a drug dealer, but okay. you know, he loved making money and uh, just stuck, name stuck. And Goonberg went, was out of prison. 96 hours, comes right back, same prison. There's like, just go back to your old cell. You know, like, yeah, 96, 96 hours? hours. How, does he, how does he go back in 96 hours? What did he, he do? He a drug did he... deal with his friends. But he's not the drug dealer. He's just riding. But the police pull him over. They're trying to throw all the drugs out of the car, you know, and the police grab him and, and you know, all of you are arrested. And obviously, if you get arrested while you're on probation, you're, you're going back to jail. 
Um, so if you like take a trip out of state or something like that, it's really not that big of a deal. And I had a circumstance that that was a decent excuse. But I think if you do it five times, you know, you can actually go, go back to jail. And um, there was a guy I knew in prison as well. We called him Car, uh, Car or Card. I think Card. And he was gambling, just nut job, you know. And you know there are people who are addicted to gambling, and and he was one of them. And he would bet on anything. And he would bet, you know, we don't have money in prison, right? But you do kind of in in a lot of ways. There's assets that you have in prison which aren't worth a lot. Is that like food? Yeah, or, things like that. Yeah. And you know, but if you wanted to, and we did this all the time, you can bet cash. You know, and if you don't pay, you, you know, this is a phrase we have: get it in blood. Uh, you know, you can get it one way or the other. Um, and you know, you tell somebody, look, you owe me 500 bucks, get on that phone and get your family to send it to somebody. I had this uh, friend who's an assistant of mine and she was like this most, the most like white bread kind of like innocent young woman, scientist type, type girl. And I, I bought a phone in prison for a thousand bucks. And I said, look, you know, there's only one problem. I told this girl, I'll call her Jane. Her name's not Jane, but so Jane, you know, it's just one problem. You got to get the cash to this guy's people. Uh, use words like people's his people's on the street need, need a thousand bucks like ASAP. And if I get him a thousand bucks, it's going to be problems. And she's like, okay, what do you want me to do? I said, you're going to get in a taxi. You're going to approach a car that's going to be waiting. It's going to have its headlights on. It's going to be in the Bronx. <laughs> I was just joking, you know, with the, and like you take thousand dollars, put it in an envelope <laughs> and you hand it. And she's like, you know, tremendous, yeah. tre- you know, trembling with fear. She's like, are you, are you serious? I was like, no, I just cashed out it, <laughs> you know, but uh, it was, uh, I set up this whole drug deal for it, but that, that really yeah. does happen where, where, you know, if you, you get into gambling debt in prison, you got to go, you know, actually take care right. of it. And sometimes that'll be your brother or sister or father or mother wow. or somebody like that, your wife even, to that has to go pay the other inmate's wife in, in real life. And, uh, so, you know, that was one way of, of transacting. And so Card, the point is yeah. that this guy ends up violating probation because he went to the his, one of his conditions of probation. Everyone has slightly different ones. His was you cannot go to a gambling establishment. Card went to casino six times. He was warned the first time. He said, look, <laughs> no. you're going to go back to jail if you go back. And he's yeah. like, okay, your honor, I understand. He goes back again. They pull him back in. That's it's just like, an addiction. Does he just, at that point. Clear, clear, clear. Or does he not care? Or is the addiction stronger than his desire to stay out of jail? So many guys I met in jail. Uh, I'm trying to think of the next guy. His name was, um, I don't remember his name exactly, but this guy was kind of this like pretty mean looking fellow that, that loved to rob grocery stores. He robbed a grocery store for $75. You know, hundred dollars, two hundred fifty bucks, right? It's not a big take when you rob a grocery store, um, and he gets charged with something called the Hobbs Act, which is like basically the law that you know governs this, and it, it allows for the federal government to come down on you for what's fairly a, a local crime, which is not sort of supposed to be the case. You know, that's supposed to be a state crime. So this guy's like on his sixth Hobbs Act, and he gets like twenty two years or something like that. And we're sitting talking, we got nothing to do. And I'm like, you really kind of like are addicted to this, basically, right? You're addicted to the thrill. It's not the money. Like you're not making, like you do this once a month. Like you're not making enough money to make ends meet. Like, but you're doing this because it's the thrill, isn't it? And he's like, yeah, more or less. You know, I was the first person to like kind of get to the bottom of this. That, you know, you can be addicted to drugs, of course, but you could also be addicted to risk. You know, on Wall Street, we used to talk about people who are riskaholics. Uh, you could be addicted to danger and thrill and I don't know, this can't be anything a lot more thrilling than robbing a bank. I mean, it's not thrilling to me maybe, but like to somebody <laughs> it's gotta be, I mean, we watch movies about this, like heat or, you know, other films that, you know, make it like really exciting, a car chase or something like that. And there's people who do this in real life <laughs> and, you know, they find it fascinating and thrilling and, you know, it's something that, you know, you can't really change. So, you know, my goal isn't to, to break any rule or regulation, but 
you know, in that specific circumstance, you know, is a, is a good excuse. But it is surprising to me that the probation sort of construct, uh, you know, is it's sort of like when it doesn't work, it, it doesn't it doesn't really help anybody most of the time when it does work. It doesn't work very often. So it's like in general, just in the way and not really helping anybody. And recidivism kind of needs a better solution. I was talking to, it was like Palmer Lucky or somebody about this. Like, how do you actually incentivize people to not go back to jail? And like, you have, might have to do something like pretty grotesque to most people, which is like, you actually pay somebody for every year. <laughs> they don't go to jail. And that sounds crazy because it's like, man, I don't get paid for not breaking the law. Right. Why can't, why do I have to pay this guy? And it's like, well, well less crime. It's one way to do it. <laughs> you know, it's it's not pretty, but it could work. But then I feel like everyone would want to go to jail just to get the first paid. Time. Yeah, just you know, get on yeah. Your, yeah, you get one crime <laughs> and then be like, hey, well, pay me 10 grand a year. I'm never going to do that again. That's a good point. Getting a felony is not not easy. I um just had one of my bank accounts canceled, you know, just randomly. You know, just so, randomly? Did they find out? I feel like your name is... Yeah, yeah, something like that, right? Known, and right? it's just like, yeah, it's over. Sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like... In those cases, could it be a person at the bank that just straight up says, I don't like this guy. Could be any of them. Let's above. delete. Sure. It's at my discretion... For whatever reason, I have the right to. I mean, as a private institution, would they have a right to just say, you know? I think they did this with like the Proud Boys, you know, where it's like right. they weren't criminals exactly or yet or whatever, and it was just like, look, you're part of a group that some people think is like a white supremacist group or something like that, and it's like we don't want to be the bank that handles your money, mm-hmm. and in some ways that makes sense, but the reason it's made a lot of sense for these banks. Is because, for example, Jeffrey Epstein um, had a bank account or brokerage account or whatever, a lot of money at uh, Deutsche Bank and some other banks, JP Morgan, I think. Mm-hmm. They had to pay a lot of fines just for just because they had this guy's account. And it's like you you sort of have the government pushing down to, to business what they should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And to me, that's not great because um, you know, you're you're basically you have some of these services that are critical, like banking, um, becoming less critical thanks to crypto, but you know, it's hard to live without a bank account and or or phone or things like that, utilities. You know, at what point does Con Edison say, yeah, you know, we saw your tweet and, you know, that's why your lights are out. <laughs> you know, that that I think that, you know, conceivably could happen someday. Uh, thankfully, I think the, the woke world is sort of like moving back to the center, which is good. But I think that, you know, uh, and I don't blame a bank for, for saying maybe not wanting to deal with somebody who's convicted of a financial crime. You know, I think that I, I can kind of understand that. It kind that. of makes sense. Yeah. But I still think like the idea that a bank could just basically decide that, you know, they yeah. don't like your politics. Or, Do you think maybe that's some risk mitigation on their end where maybe the banks are afraid of the government? But before we go into that, are you running a business and you want to hear this sound a lot more? Well, our sponsor Shopify is there to help. Shopify is the global e-commerce platform that's already helped transform millions of businesses worldwide. For example, Shopify has an endless list of integrations, third-party apps, and flexible templates to help customize your store exactly how you want it. And what sets Shopify apart from their competitors is their ability to turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkouts that's 36% better on average than other leading e-commerce platforms. And Shopify actually powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, supporting brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn in over 175 countries. In fact, my coffee company, Bankroll Coffee, runs exclusively through Shopify. And when it came time to look at platforms, Shopify was the best by far, and we had the best experience with them. Plus, they have an award-winning support team that's there to help you every step of the way. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com ICH, all lowercase. Grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com ICH. Again, it's only a $1 trial period at 
shopify.com slash ICH, all lowercase, and the link is also down below in the description. So thank you guys so much, and now let's get back to the episode. Do you think maybe that's some risk mitigation on their end, where maybe the banks are afraid of the government? Well, that's, that's so they what I'm say, well, getting. We don't want a $100 million fine. Right. So it's easier for us to say, sorry, go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think like it, it's really sad because if they're avoiding an action from the government, which is, well, what's the government's impetus? It's to help the bank act as law enforcement. You know, the bank doesn't know the guy's doing crime or not. They, they're not supposed to, you know, sort of like see that. You know, it's it's this the KYC AML kind of like expansion that certainly for crypto is taking place where it's like, you know, they have to, you know, you have to do so much background checking on your client that, and then you're supposed to sort of know whether or not like they're allowed to be, you know, a customer or not. Like a foreign, there was some one analysis we had to do one time for like foreign dignitary. Mm. And it was like, well, does this guy from Uzbekistan, you know, is technically, you know, in the government there, does he count as a KYC AML exemption or whatever? And it's like, who cares? Like, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden we're taking money from, you know, it's like, but it's such a political thing that, you know, uh, for example, like the Russian oligarchs have been put on the, yeah. you know, on this list. And if you do business with them, you're, you're toast because uh, they're on this exempt exemption uh, or whatever, this restricted list. And it's like, well, who decides that that list and who decides when they get off or, or whatever? And, you know, look, I, I'm not a fan of what some of those guys do, but it it's sort of like, you know, why is the government getting in the middle of this? And it's for basically control reasons, power reasons, and so forth. It's just any reason they, they can get to like sort of be in charge, they'll sort of take, which is, is sort of sad because, again, you know, for somebody to be restricted for their brokerage account or bank account or anything else, you know, it is a little frustrating. For example, I got banned from uh, being a publicly traded, at least in the U.S., mm-hmm. officer or director. And that's frustrating because mm-hmm. I've, I've been a very successful publicly traded CEO and director. Uh, I've never made a, a crime related to being a publicly, even even a fake crime, uh, like the ones I was convicted of. <laughs> even, even one of those I haven't been convicted of uh, being a, uh, you know, sort of having a, uh, any crime related to being a publicly traded officer or director. And, you know, Elizabeth Holmes had a settlement with the SEC where she got five years of of not being a publicly traded. Mm. Mine was lifetime. You know, if you have a lifetime ban for things that are like somewhat innocuous, or even if they're not innocuous, if you pay your debt to society and you can't ever recover from them, uh, no matter how much penance you do, no matter how much growth you you go through as a person, you know, you're, you're forever banned. It sort of doesn't make sense. You know, it's not a society I think that most people want. What are your thoughts on authority today? And has that changed since you were a kid? Yeah, I mean, my whole life, I've sort of been anti-authority. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that, you know. Where did that start? I don't know. You know, it's, you, it's. Was there maybe a moment where your parents said something to you and you said, you know what? I disagree with that. When you started, <laughs> when you started to come to your own and say, you know what? I don't have to do that thing. They want me to take a bath. I don't feel like taking a bath. I'm not dirty. Right. That is my choice. And I could choose not to do that. You know, I, I can't play a psychologist and like, go all the way back yeah. and sort of understand why it happened. But I do know it, it did happen at some point. And I, I, I think it was sort of a mix of a few things. I mean, one, I think that, you know, arrogance in general is kind of like this pretty detestable property people have. And, you know, anytime you can bring somebody down a notch, I've sort of relished that opportunity, <laughs> you know, sort of put myself in the mix and, and bring somebody down a notch. And, you know, it's fun. And most people enjoy that. Most people like to see that, you know, and whether that's a bully or, whomever, it's, it's somebody has to sort of stand up and be the person that's, you know, it's also going to take, you know, the, the arrows and the, you know, the, all the, the, 
the sort of uh, repercussions of that. But, you know, if, if you're brave enough to do it, you know, a lot of people sort of are looking behind you and saying, I'm not that brave, but good for that guy. And I think that, you know, not being afraid of things is, is something that I've like, you know, inherited as, as well. It's sort of yeah. like this natural. <laughs> and, and did anything happen that prompted you to be so, I think, very confident in who you are and what you believe in and very shameless of just, here's what I believe, here's what I stand for. If you disagree, it doesn't bother me at all. And that's the vibe that I've gotten from listening to all of your interviews is that it does not seem to affect you whatsoever. It's just, I am me and that's it. Take it or leave it. And I think, I think there's something that's very courageous about that. Yeah, I think you have to have conviction. I mean, and, and the thing about conviction is you can be wrong. You know, it's okay to be wrong. You know, um, I've, I've had opinions that I've changed my mind on. And I'm never, I have confidence, but I've never have this idea of like being 100% right or something like that. Yeah. You know, it's a feeling. You know, I have a feeling that firms, you know, it's like goes back to college, but like firms should set the price of their products, you know, and, and nobody else should be able to do anything but the marketplace, buyers and sellers. Price too high, buyer walks away. Uh, price too low, buyers flood the market. You know, that's just the nature of economics. And, and I have a very firm feeling that that's really the way it should work and that anybody who tries to influence that, you know, should be kicked out uh, because it doesn't help the world. Yeah. Uh, markets help the world a lot. You know, you have opinions like that. That's a really strongly held opinion. But I also have loosely held opinions, you know, and, and I, I don't, I try not to express much confidence in that. And if you ask me about, say, uh, LGBTQ affairs, I, I just sort of tell you, like, look, you know, I don't really know a lot about that. I'm really not that confident. I kind of see both sides of, of current arguments about it, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If you ask me about Palestine or something like that, I'm just, you know, I'm yeah. really not that convinced. So, so I, you have That's to be convinced. You have to have conviction on the things you know about and the yeah. things you feel a, a strongly about. And sometimes if those things are feelings that, you know, um, they're more governed by emotion than rationality, people tend to believe those more than the other way around. It's like if you explain like why drugs have to be expensive, basically, you know, if you, and if, if you have somebody in an audience that's willing to sit there and listen for an hour, you can basically convince them of that because it makes sense. But the visceral reaction is negative. You know, the immediate reaction is, no, it can't be, it can't be. And I gave this like speaking tour in the Ivy League circuit where I was trying to explain um, how the ra irrational numbers sort of came about. And way back then, um, there was this feeling that irrational numbers were like this evil concept and that they, they really couldn't be. And there was this emotional reaction to like, ah, you would get, first of all, they can't exist. And two, if they did exist, that'd be really bad. And a guy proved it and they threw him, threw him in the river. <laughs> and, you know, it was, uh, it was this emotional reaction of like, ah, you know, this is such cognitively dissonant. I really don't like this. And it makes me feel icky. And unfortunately, some, there are things like that in life that we have to come to terms with. Uh, and when we do, uh, the people who are the coldest, kind of quiet, rational, calculating people see them first. And those people are generally heretics. <laughs> what type of student were you? Oh, boy. Uh, sometimes a great one, sometimes a bad okay. one. Um, it seems like you have a very applied focus where if you care about something you're interested, you give it 100%. Whereas if you're not, you kind of, but it may, maybe not, maybe it seems like you excel it no matter what you would pick. Um, it depends. So like, you know, one of the problems with, with high school in general, and I, I gave a um, million dollars to my high school, which is the g biggest gift they've ever received, which is, which is unfortunate because there's a lot of rich people who went to my high school. And it's, it's, a, it's not a school you have to pay money to get into. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a very advanced school for, for very, very bright kids. And the problem with high school is you're going through a lot of psychological issues. And, and um, if you have a good family life, you can kind of focus on school. But if you don't, you know, you, you end up getting into some issues and I had some of those issues. Um, 
But sometimes I did, you know, really, really well. And sometimes I didn't, you know, it really depended on a number of external factors. And part of one of those factors is growing up, you know, so like if you're a child prodigy and you, you people are like basically like putting you in a, on display, you know, yeah. to people, like, wow, look at, look at my boy. He can read, you know, this chemistry textbook and he's only seven or something like that. You know, you're, you're constantly in that cage or, or display cage or display case or whatever. And eventually, you know, you sort of decide, well, wait a second, you know, I, I want to do other things. And for me, that those other things were meeting girls my age, uh, playing basketball, playing guitar, being in a rock band, like that was exciting to me. And school was sort of like performing. It was like, yeah, okay, I know this much algebra. Do I really want to know that much algebra? Yeah, kind of. But then it was like history, you know, do I really want to know more about, you know, European history? No, I don't. You know, I'm done. And and I was sort of adult enough to decide that I was done with with some parts of it. And, you know, there were some things that were fun, like French uh, was something I had a lot of fun with. So for, as a student, I mean, it's just tough because like you want to learn everything. And to this day, I still read textbooks and I still try to learn new things because I don't want to be left behind. But you also have to, to balance it with with actually applying it. And that's one of the hardest things to do. Like, what does it mean to be a good investor is, is one of the hardest things in the world to study and think about. And there's like this equal balance of philosophical rumination that I think you have to do to become a good investor. And then I think there's a lot of applied work you have to do. And the problem with the applied work is that your first 10 years of investing are kind of going to be trash no matter what. It's frustrating because you want to manage money, you want to trade, you want to do all this, but you know, you just need some experience first. And it's the same thing for programming. It's the same thing for art. It's the same thing for everything. I mean, you you need those 10 years or more or less, depending on who you are, of what it is, but it's not going to happen yeah. in three weeks. Now, if you're watching this right now, you might notice that we're extra clear today, and that's because we're filming in 4K. It's very expensive to do. We've reinvested a lot of money back into the channel to bring this to you. However, we were able to grow past 900,000 subscribers by just doing the basics. And if you want to be able to do something similar, then our sponsor, StreamYard, is there to help. StreamYard's a live streaming and content creation software that allows you to create high-quality content with just the click of a button. What's really cool about them is that all you need is a camera and an internet connection, and from there, you could stream directly from your browser. You're also able to stream throughout multiple social media platforms at the same time, from Instagram to Facebook to LinkedIn to YouTube and more, which, by the way, is really helpful because if you're not on all the platforms right now, you're missing out because you never know which one is going to take off and do the best. On a real note, though, we've been using them for years, like even way before they started sponsoring the channel. If you want to get started, they're the best way to do it for free with the link down below in the description. Again, we've been using StreamYard personally for years now and absolutely love them. And like we mentioned earlier, you could get started today for free with the link down below in the description. Thank you so much. And now let's get back to the episode. How did you get started with investing? I, I begged my dad, uh, who just passed away. Uh, I oh. gu guilt tripped him. This is one of his, his favorite stories. Yeah. <laughs> I guilt tripped him into opening an E-Trade account. This E-Trade just came out and you know, it was like 96 or something like that. Wow. And uh, maybe it was 98. Back with $20 commission trades. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, minimum 2,000 bucks. Oh, my God. You know, and I think that's <laughs> still the minimum, but inflation is, you know, yeah. a bit different. So for us, for our family, you know, 2,000 bucks wasn't nothing. Right. Uh, it felt like a fortune to me. It turns out that it really wasn't a fortune to our family, but, you know, I, I didn't have a good sense that my parents were actually saving alcohol, saving colics. You know, they, they love to save money, every penny, if they could. Uh, it's kind of like the old mentality, you know, never had a credit card, never, you know, just right. save the money. Um, and, uh, you know, like my dad would, would like literally get at money orders, and like didn't have a checking account, you know, wow. you know, just 
So we're talking like cash. Cash, money orders, you know, like depositing the rent check, like, you know, all of those types of things, cashing the rent, I don't know, paying yeah. the check. Like he'd go to the bank if he needed a check. It was like really wild. Wow. And, uh, you know, he just didn't trust like, you know, Banks. anything else. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And uh, <laughs> my dad turned out to be yeah. pretty right. <laughs> okay. Sounds about didn't right. trust the banks. You know, I assume he had some gold. There's got to be some precious metals thrown in there. Usually there is. No, no. And remember, my, my parents are from the poorest country in, in yeah. Europe, Albania. I recently joked that because I'm Albanian, I'm a person of color. And, um, you know, that's not the case. Uh, Albanians are white. But uh, I, tried to get, I tried to get some attention on Twitter and get people pissed <laughs> off. Nobody's pissed off. You know, like one or two people got, got like, hey, actually, you're not a person of color. You know, but like yeah. 10 years ago, you'd be canceled. You know, you'd be, you know, you'd be on, on newspaper. You know, now it's like, eh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and I'm not sure that's a good thing, honestly, but regardless. So what happened with the $2,000? So, so my dad opened this account um, on he, under his name, you know, because there's like accounts, rules against minors and stuff yeah. like that. So I'd always log in on my, my dad's name and I make some trades and, you know, uh, predictably, uh, ultimately, you know, I it did okay for a little while, but ultimately, you know, the, the account went, went to zero basically. And I actually would end up replenishing the account uh, about a year or two later. I'd, I'd go to Wall Street and I took my paycheck and deposited it. And it was a lot of this painful tuition of like investing, trying to figure out how to do it and then failing and then keep trying and keep failing and keep trying. And eventually, okay, maybe the failure periods get, you know, it takes longer to fail, maybe see a little success or, or something like that. And I think so many retail traders um, have to go through that. But I was also becoming a professional investor too, you know, working at a hedge fund. So uh, watching how they made trades and starting to think, okay, maybe, you know, I should do something like this. But I still couldn't really compute this idea that leverage was bad. <laughs> and it took a long time for me to really compute that. And you still see people like, for instance, where crypto is like this very like funny casino where like there's different things like KuCoin or um, Binance, I still think does this and maybe others, maybe even like Kraken, who's like very good and responsible. And I'm sure Coinbase has something like all of, basically all of these guys have some kind of product that lets you basically bet somewhere between 10 to 100 X. I say objectively leverage is bad in trading. I would say so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. In fact, like the best traders I've ever met don't, not only do they not use leverage, they can't find enough great trades to use the cash they have. Which is really kind of a Warren Buffett approach. Really You're sitting wild. on so yeah. much cash and you just sit there and you wait. I have and a friend. patient for decades. Yeah. I, I have a friend who is uh, one of Steve Cohen's early partners uh, way, way back, way back when. And, you know, there's some people who, you know, Steve had some of the best traders of all time. And there's some other firms that, that had those too. because there just weren't that many uh, great uh, hedge funds back then. So a lot of people trace their lineage to Tiger, Soros, Steinhardt. Uh, Steve Cohen sort of came a little bit after in a handful of other firms. Um, there's one called uh, Odyssey that, that was similar. And this guy worked for Cohen. They were, they're still, I think, fairly close friends. And he had never had a down quarter ever. He had about 30, 40% returns over the years. But his average exposure is you know, a bit of a hedge fund term, but just like what percentage of your capital are you actually using? Anything over 100% is leverage. Uh, anything below 100% is kind of weird. Like, supposed to put your money to work. This guy had like 30, 40% gross exposure. Wow. So like he just, when he traded, he just never lost. Hmm. But he, he, he did discipline to not trade, make bad trades. Right. <laughs> and, you know, there are a lot of traders like that where like they actually do better the less they trade. What have you seen most hedge fund managers trade and how do they trade differently than the average retail investor? 
yeah, I think the biggest lesson for me, and, and this is something I had to go through a lot of pain for this, and I, I saw it a lot with the Wall Street Bets world as well, where I was like an early member trying to talk sense into those uh, folks who, you know, I enjoyed their passion for the markets. I enjoyed the memes, but I also was like trying to explain like the idea of you only live once is like so antithetical to being a good investor. <laughs> um, yes, you do only live once, but you, your portfolio can have a hundred percent drawdown. You got to start from scratch. And kind of the whole idea of capitalism is that you, you kind of keep growing it. Um, and so I think the, the biggest lesson is this idea of like, you know, don't, don't water your weeds, uh, and don't pluck your roses too early. And, and I was even talking to somebody yesterday or this morning, actually about Peter Thiel's you know, biggest regret, you know, not being buying more Facebook, you know, and like when, you know, he got, he was the very first investor in Facebook mm -hmm. and he got to buy 10% of what's now a trillion dollar company for 500 grand. And, you know, that stake, if he kept it, would, it would be worth, you know, some, some insane number, like, you know, 50 billion or more. And that's from an investment. Uh, he's not founder of Facebook and, you know, he sold, <laughs> um, he sold because it was up a lot and he said, Oh, time to, time to sell. And I think that like a lot of people, when they got addicted to bed, bath and beyond, uh, GameStop, AMC, you know, just kind of bad companies and bad stocks, sort of different things, which is very hard to sort of tell the difference sometimes. So that's one of the key things. But I think the key thing is like, okay, I bought a bad stock it happens to everyone. You know, it's going to happen to everyone. Don't like fall in love with it and believe that like it can't be a bad, I, I can't people like it can't be a bad People company. like the community though. It's yes. very rare to find a community of investors who like one thing and all bond over that one thing. And I think it's that community that keeps people holding onto stocks. I don't, I've never seen it before where people pick one company and they just say, I am diehard. I think Tesla was one of the first ones that I saw. But it expanded throughout meme stocks and I, all of these other companies. I think and, the internet's to blame. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I think I think you did have that in more private communities where, you know, you'd have dinner with a couple hedge fund people and they'd be like, oh, yeah, John, John's a, you know, Tesla lover, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, oh, Steve, he's a Tesla hater, you know, and and we'd be like, John, you're still in Tesla? Oh, six years in. Wow. <laughs> still haven't sold. And you, you have those conversations. But I think the, the pathological thing is when you become addicted to it to a point where it's like no amc can do no wrong or gamestop can do no wrong and it's like look you know the numbers don't lie the balance sheet is what it is the income statement is what it is you shouldn't have that much passion about it um now if you if and this kind of comes to like the greater point of capitalism in general and like stock picking which is why it's hard is that managers <laughs> are very hard to sort of size up as an investor because if you know a manager can compound capital and find ways to use the company's capital in new and profitable ways, basically there's no price you, you wouldn't pay for a stock like that if you knew that ahead of time. So if you look at Microsoft, this is a company that went public, you know, for, I don't know what the market cap was, but it was like 300 million or 500 million. And since they started, you know, since it went public, maybe in like 1980, they've been able to compound, you know, their capital and their resources and put them to work to a point where they've, they've, they're now, you know, two, two or whatever trillion dollar company. And if you knew the management team there was so good, that good, you would have, you know, basically there's no price you would have paid because eventually you would have gotten trillions of dollars uh, in market cap. And Buffett's the same example. You can't value a company necessarily on price to earnings or DCF because what's the CEO going to do is, and what's the board going to do in the management team as a whole? That's the bigger question. The business itself sometimes is easy to value, sometimes isn't. 
but can management take the capital from the business and actually make something great? And that's why it's impossible almost to like value a Tesla because it's, it's like, yeah, I can do all the numbers I want. I can really study the products. I can really study everything like that. But that's not what most of the value of Tesla is. Most of the value of Tesla is the boss taking cash flows and or investor money and making something new with it. Yeah. And that, that makes it really, really hard to even value something like Lululemon, which is like, okay, it's a clothing business. I actually tried to short Lululemon for, for a little while. It's been a tough, yeah. <laughs> tough experience. How did you meet Jim Cramer? Oh, um, well, as you can tell, I talk, I talk yeah. too much. And uh, when I was a, a young kid, I um, just loved talking about stocks. And I didn't know a lot about investing, but I knew a lot about the, the companies, kind of relative to my age. Yeah. You know, obviously didn't know a lot about anything, but, you know, I really didn't know much about investing philosophy, but I knew a little bit about like the actual details of the companies. And it was a lot of fun to learn those details. And people were like, this kid won't shut up about the stock market. Maybe you should meet uh, Jim Cramer. And the guy who said that knew like the office manager, you know, at the firm. And I said, sure, you know, I'd, I'd love to do that. How big was he back then, by the way? So back then it was like three, $400 million hedge fund. It was, you know, a good chunk of the money was his. One of the weirdest hedge funds, uh, because at the time, maybe not weird for the time, but it, it was basically a domestic only hedge fund, which these days doesn't really exist. You know, uh, most of the people who invest in hedge funds are uh, institutions who are tax exempt or foreign investors because there's really no point paying the K-1 you pass through capital gains tax, which is kind of nuts. And believe it or not, Renaissance is also kind of like a fairly domestic oriented hedge fund because most of the money is kind of like individual people. And so for Kramer, like a lot of the partners, our partners were just like well-known people, you know, actors or different like various wealthy people, some doctors and things like that. But the big investors today in hedge funds are institutions. And in fact, if you look at someone like uh, Bridgewater, like their biggest investor, like the Mormon church, <laughs> you know, or like uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, <laughs> you know, like things like that, you know, because like you got to put together all that capital and in, in invest their minimum investments, like so enormous, like billion dollars at least. And uh, back then, hedge funds were a little different. They're more like a, a very much like a, cottage industry maybe like a family office sort of deal yeah it's like very okay. small companies sure. 10 people cottage industry nobody had thought to supersize a hedge fund and in fact my friend from uh who's an early partner of, of steve's said that his biggest regret you know this and this is a guy who to me was a master of the universe and he said and we we're talking about oxif and citadel which at the time were two of the biggest hedge funds and i said i said yeah it's amazing how did this guy manage so much money he said martin my biggest regret is not like taking the hedge fund business seriously in the sense that you could like scale it into something so big and millennium and citadel and bridgewater and those, those firms have done that by basically deciding that yes the returns are important but the amount of assets are also extremely important and i think like the old world and hedge funds was the only thing that mattered was the returns it didn't matter how much capital you had because the returns were almost like a it's almost like how many points you put up you know for a basketball game or something like that you really it really mattered for you uh that that you were the best and like Raj Rajatnam was, was a really good example of that, where he was like addicted to beating everyone else every year. And it, he got so addicted to it, he committed insider trading over and over <laughs> and, and he did more time than I did, yeah. uh, which is really sad. I mean, I'm laughing, but, you know, I do think that, you know, that like performance anxiety and performance addiction is, is like one of the things that has made hedge funds like this hazardous um, industry. If you look at the top maybe 10 or 20 hedge funds of all time, about 20, 30% of, of them shut down because somebody went to jail. 
and the other 20 or 30% shut down because somebody didn't quite go to jail, but could have, and just, they just had some other scandal. And the other half of them, you know, have been able to sort of make it by squeaky clean, but often with not so great returns. So, you know, it's really, it's a really crazy industry in a lot of ways. Hmm. What's the best and worst trade you've ever made? Oh, Jesus. Uh, I thought you told me you wouldn't ask me a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, well, there's a lot of, um, ways to think about trades. And I think this is the thing that a lot of people, if they knew they would, they would be better traders. Um, people think about trading as securities and that's the only thing you could trade is security. And that's just so wrong. Um, you could trade anything and anytime you make a trade, and this is like corporate finance one-on-one, my, my 14th year old Christmas present was a corporate finance textbook. Uh, the Brilly Myers, uh, corporate finance, uh, textbook, still a standard textbook in, uh, academic finance. And ultimately like anything you do, you can basically think about it as investment. And once you start thinking the world through that lens, I think a lot of things change. Um, because the securities on the menu, uh, is the metaphor I like to use, you know, sometimes you want to order, order off the menu. And I think you do a lot better when you do that. And so when I think of the menu in hedge funds, it's usually like domestic stocks, well-trafficked stocks, liquid stocks, stuff like that. And everyone's looking at the same shit. And it's really boring because if everyone's looking at the same thing, everyone's like putting a microscope under the same securities. Well, there's some security somewhere else that you know, nobody's looking at. And yeah, you might have to learn Korean or you, know, you might have to you know, do something like that. But like, how do you turn a small pile of money into a large pile of money? Right. That's kind of the, the goal. And you think about like, I don't really care how I do that. All I really care about is that I do do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Because nobody's going to ask, you know, when you're, when you're in your Hamptons, you know, summer house with, you know, a pool bigger than, you know, the Atlantic ocean that, you know, you're, you know, and you're sipping your, your martini that, you know, oh, how exactly did you make all this money? You're really just like, wow, this guy's rich. And again, whether or not that's a, something you should be shooting for in life is, mm-hmm. you know, something we could talk about in another podcast. But assuming that's what you want, um, that's really the focus. It's like, I'll do anything to win. And the pile of money is, is um, you know, the important part. So I think like private equity is, when you start to think about liquidity is like, well, maybe you don't care about the liquidity because if all you care about is the money transformation, what does it matter if it's a four-letter ticker or a private asset? And I think the private asset industry for pharma is something that's now become extremely, you know, well um, sort of looked at. But at the time, um, there was only one guy in New York who's like really looking at this stuff really closely. And his name is uh, Lindsay Rosenwald. And he's, he's still active, I think. Uh, I started to – there's another group that did it called Royalty Pharma, but they, they only did pharma royalties. But then I started to look at drug assets like stocks. And how did you even come on, like learn? Well, hold on. What was it? the yeah. trade? What was oh, the, oh, he's oh, getting there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so like, all right. So, so starting to look at drugs like stocks instead of just stocks without a ticker, you know, but they're stocks in essence, they're, you know, they're, they have some value. They don't have 10 Qs and Ks, but they have different properties, but they're still financial assets in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so this guy, Rosenwald, he was, he was doing a bit of it, but he didn't have a good reputation. People really didn't like him. Uh, for whatever reason, he had a couple wins. He had a lot of losses. He tended to not use his capital. Um, he just tended to hold a stake in the company and sort of germinate it. And he did this like hundreds of times. And he actually did really well. But I think people didn't like the kind of like heads I win, tails I win mm-hmm. kind of style that he financed it in. Um, and then I started to do it as well. And then Roy Van of uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's company yeah. uh, sort of took our business model and times it by a hundred and it, it worked out really well for him. So like when you look at 
all kinds of assets as they're just possible trades, you can really find some amazing opportunities. There was um, one company that that I particularly that that stood out to me uh, as we found this asset. Um, it wasn't me who found it, by the way. It was a teammate. And he said, I think we can do something here. And I, I said, well, what's the story? So there's a kidney stone disease that only happens if you have a genetic mutation. And there's like seven kinds of kidney stones. You you know, the, there's like calcium stone. There's a cysteine stone. This was a cysteine stone. There's like, they they form into these. Have you ever seen a physical kidney stone? They look yeah, they, very painful. Yeah. Fucking. Yeah. 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 It's like yeah, a rock. Like, yeah. Like yeah. Salt pieces. Yeah. And, and that's, that's going through you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it, it suffered from men and women, I think, by the way, but, uh, regardless, uh, it, it, it's pretty painful. You know, uh, they say it's like a childbirth almost, you know, and you're passing the stone. It's, right. It's really unbelievable, pain, painful thing. It's not exactly fatal disease. It's not exactly going to kill you, but it, you don't want a kidney stone. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's a genetic cause of kidney stones called cystinuria. And there's a company, uh, out in Texas and they had this, this drug. And the only reason anybody took this drug was to stop their kidney stones, their genetic kidney stones. And they stopped making it. <laughs> and it was wild because the people with this kidney stones were like, fuck, I'm going to have to pass a stone now. And they're like, the only drug I could take for this now is Oxycontin. <laughs> like, there's no, mm-hmm. that doesn't even work. You know, but I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to be in this enormous amount of pain, you know, for no reason. Because you guys, wh- why, you, why, why do you stop making it? And the reality is there's a lot of medicine that, Companies don't want to make or they won't make because there's not enough money in it. Uh, and this drug was selling uh, $2 million a year, which is, I don't even think you can break even on that. Um, you know, 2 million bucks just to, just to like file your annual forms with FDA and all this stuff. If you're breaking even, you're lucky. Um, but you're certainly not making much of a margin because you got to make the stuff and you got to make it in a plant that's, you know, um, FDA approved plant and, um, there's a number of other fees now that come with with having an FDA approved drug, and don't forget you have an infrastructure that you got to pay for too. You know the drugs have to pay for your office mm-hmm. and your you know all that stuff. So there's like some capitalized portion of everything in your company is being kind of like pro rata uh, assigned to to all the costs you have. So you have some incremental margins, probably like a million bucks, but you still have to like the lawyers at your company like part of their responsibility is that drug. Mm-hmm. You know, the salespeople, part of their responsibility is that drug. So you have these associated costs that do exist. Um, some people think of like, oh, gross margin is really it. But it's like, well, you know, you, you still have other costs. You yeah. know, your audit is some percentage related to that drug. Mm-hmm. You know, even though that drug is small, it, it, it pays for some of the audit. So basically, it's unprofitable, if you ask me. Um, and so they stopped making it because um, they forgot. They actually forgot to order another batch. Just because it wasn't making them enough money to really pay attention. Small piece of the pie. Yeah. Well, I was in, I was in Switzerland once uh, with uh, a major drug company, uh, one name, and I met one of their guys. The company had like 500 drugs, but like five made all the money. Mm. The other 450, you know, 495 didn't. And I met a guy who's like literally responsible for like 300 of those drugs. And I would ask him like, like an encyclopedia of medicine, but I would like, like rapid fire ask him, like, you're responsible for this? You're responsible for that? You're responsible for that? I can't say the drug names because it would give away what company it is. But, and he was just like shocked. He's like, you know my, he's in this like Swiss franchise. He's like, you know my portfolio better than I do. And he's like laughing. And I'm like, that's not funny. <laughs> that's scary. Like people need these medicines, man. And, you know, I would like love to troll through these old medicines and buy them. That's kind of what Vivek uh, yeah. did a little bit as well in a different way. And um, so this company just forgot. And it's not surprising because again, think about this Swiss French guy. He was like, 
I didn't know <laughs> like if this is what the supply you know chain looks like for drugs number 273 in our portfolio why would I know I just know because like we're this company is a product of like 18 mergers mm-hmm. so like merger one was for you know drug because three company has three drugs other company has 10 drugs we merged now we have yeah. 13 so the pharmacy industry is really looking at these medicines not so much as medicines but investments how can how much can we make off of each no, medicine I mean, and what's I, the ROI I think it's like obviously there's got to be some product, benefit to justify it. Every product you have as a company yeah. has to be looked at, you know, that way. You know, it's it's a it's a business. Yeah. Um, you know, so you can't be in business unless you think about it as sure. investments and things like that. I mean, but I think that um this company sort of had this problem where they had their attention elsewhere and thinking about the supply chain of this drug wasn't just on top of the mind. And they figured, okay, well, we just order it again. And it takes like six months to get the order done. So you got people who are you know, really sick for six months and it sucks. And, you know, we went in there and we said, look, we'll, we'll give you 3 million bucks. And we actually tried to buy the whole drug and they said they didn't want to do that. So we racked our brains. We tried to pay through the nose for it. They, they still didn't want to do it. And we basically said, let, we're going to manage the commercialization of this drug from now on. We're going to pay $3 million uh, up front, like today to sign this deal. And no matter what, we'll pay you $2 million or more than 2 million, I forget what it was, like maybe 3 million guaranteed minimum every year. So like more than what you're actually selling now. Mm-hmm. And we'll take over all the commercialization, we'll feel the sales force, we'll, but we also get to control pricing. And that was kind of like bullet point eight. <laughs> and bullet point eight was, was important because what we did is the, pr- the price of the drug was um, 2,000 bucks a year and we increased it to 80,000. And um, the the craziest thing about this is the number of people on the drug. You would normally think, like take a microeconomics course, that as you raise price, demand goes down. And it even applies for medicine. Demand actually went up. Hmm. Um, so more people were able to access the drug. More people were able to take the drug. Why did demand go up? Was that you marketing yeah, the drug? Yeah. You were just marketing it to more people. How so do you, more people were aware? I think, I think doctors, you, you know, when they look at kidney stones, they don't necessarily understand that you know, most nephrologists do, but a lot, of, a lot of doctors don't really understand there's a genetic cause of kidney stones. And that if you have your first kidney stone, you, you don't want another one ever again. Right. And so why not get that genetic test? Some people just say, here's the stone, whatever, I'll keep it as a souvenir, I'll throw it away. But, you know, I'm done and I'm yeah. not going to get one again. Well, if you get a second one, a third one, fourth one, you know, you have a genetic illness, then this drug basically stops all of it from happening. How do you, Amazing. How do you advertise that drug? Is that through commercials or is that through sales reps? With, with, with ultra rare diseases like this one is, again, there are a couple thousand people need this medicine, um, you know, not millions of people. So there's no point in advertising on television or anything like that. You do, you get like 10, 20 sales reps and you find the biggest nephrologists in the country who see patients with kidney stones and you just, have a conversation with them, explain, you know, what to look for and things like that. So how was that price then changed for the people actually needing the drug? Because I'm assuming most people went for insurance through insurance. How would that affect their premiums? And also how much money were you making per year off of this? Was it $3 million investment? Yeah. So it was basically a $3 million investment if you, if you think Mm -hmm. about it. And so, yeah, insurance doesn't, you know, a lot of people don't understand health insurance, which is why, you know, there's sort of this backlash. Uh, A lot of people don't understand pharma either. There, there was a drug out there. I was, I was actually an investor in. I wanted to be like one of the early investors, but I had to settle for the IPO. This drug costs $2.3 million a year. Right? There's no patient on planet Earth that can afford it. Um, it. And it's for babies, interestingly. 
and it's a it's a lethal illness and saves their life and it's amazing uh before this it was death sentence disease now you can actually survive it which is amazing and it's 2.3 million dollars because nobody has this disease it's very very rare if it's your baby it's the biggest most important thing in your life there's nothing more important and you'll do anything to save your baby's life and this drug is costs it costs a fortune to make it costs a fortune to research and because nobody has it they have to price it basically at, at this price to to make it make sense and you know if every insurance carrier pays for it immediately because their job isn't so much to avoid cost which i think is also a misunderstanding so you got like hundreds of little misunderstandings mm -hmm. that compound into like this gigantic misunderstanding um which is unfortunate because i don't expect the average joe to like know everything about the pharmaceutical industry or pharmaceutical the research part of it or the pricing part of it or the orphan drug part of it or like you know all the little details that are in the system which is like this very complex machine but um generally speaking insurance companies for life-saving medicine never say no and and they make they may sound surprising but their job isn't so much to lower costs they actually like higher costs in some their job is to make sure the spending makes sense so if you want ozempic and you know, metformin is like the best drug to take for diabetes, but you want Ozempic because you want to lose weight. It makes a lot more sense for them to say no and to say, look, you got to take metformin. You got to take this other drug. Insulin and, and Ozempic come last, you know, after you've failed the cheap drugs. Because why should we spend our client's money? Our client is Microsoft, Walmart, whoever that's buying the health insurance or the managed care. That's the best way, better way to put it. And we're not going to waste their resources because they may need this drug for $2 million to save somebody's life. That we kind of have to pay for. But it's so rare that $2 million doesn't really add up because, we, you know, the whole healthcare cost to treat Microsoft's employees is like $50 billion or something. You know, it's not ever going to be something that, you know, is, is uh, that meaningful. And those, that's a cost that doesn't make sense for us to share with the patient. Um, so the copay is zero. Mm -hmm. what, what are we going to get? 50 bucks out of patient? It doesn't make yeah. sense. But if you're thinking about Ozempic, it's like, look, you want Ozempic, you're better pay for all of it or half of it or something like that. And that makes sense. So they're managed care in the, in the sense that they, they try to decide, okay, what's important, what isn't? And where are we wasting money when we could be saving money? For example, there's 20 antidepressants that are generic, but drug companies come up with new ones all the time. They don't sell too well, but they, they try to push new antidepressants. Like, look, you take Prozac, you know, Prozac's been generic 20 years, like five cents. You know, why would we pay for the new antidepressant that's like five bucks a pill when this thing's five cents a pill? It just still makes sense. And that's why generics are like close to free or three bucks or five bucks when you go to the pharmacy. And when you go for the pharmacy and your doctors prescribe, prescribe you a drug that you don't really need, it's like $217. And you're like, you know, what, what is this? And it's probably because 95% of drugs are now generic. And the list of drugs that have gone generic over the last 40 years is you can basically treat the world's problems with that list. The, the brand new drugs are, you know, they're, they're, they're still helping the world, but we've accumulated so many great drugs that are now off patent that most of medicine is being treated by this sum of drugs. The new ones that come along every now and then are nice. They're, they're absolutely important. And they're needed. Uh, for diseases like cancer, diseases like some super rare diseases, Alzheimer's needs a couple of new medicines, obviously. But in some, these, these, the drugs we have today can treat most of modern medicine for close to nothing. And that's like a miracle of the generic drug industry. Um, so anyway, kind of getting distracted here, but the, I think that, you know, patients for rare diseases never bear the brunt of the cost. And what's ironic, it, it, I have like this discord community and stuff like that. 
a lot of my community members are rare disease patients because uh, they understand that they need a company to care and to make money to get a chance to survive. I have a friend who is uh, osteogenesis imperfecta, which is a rare bone disease. Never heard of it. Uh, osteoporosis, mm -hmm. probably heard of your mom might have it or something like that. Uh, but OI is extremely rare. Uh, he has OI type three, very rare disease. He has had over 500 bones broken in his life. Uh, he's about four feet tall. Wow. He can't really move. His disease will probably kill him. Every year he expects to die. He's 20 something. And he says, he knows that I have, I happen to know a lot about OI for some reason, because I, I like rare diseases and I like studying them and, and it's my field. And we talk about OI, we talk about, you know, it's a collagen processing disorder and this and that. And he, he would like nothing more than to be able to walk. <laughs> He'd like nothing more uh, than to be able to make a strong bone like we have, but he can't because that's his lot in life. For him, the idea of the price mattering or the idea of a company making money mattering is so far removed from the idea of being able to walk. He would be ecstatic if somebody made a billion dollars off of his disease and then he got to walk. He would be ecstatic. He would praise that person. And he's like, he's just encouraging me to be that person. He's like, come up with a, a drug for my disease. Charge whatever you want. <laughs> you know, make, get, help me walk. You know, that's what I care about. You know, I hope you become rich, you know, doing this. And I think that, you know, that makes sense to somebody with the illness, a family that has a kid dying of muscular dystrophy needs someone like Vivek or me or someone like that to make a billion dollars saving their son's life. Uh, I've met many mothers who have a kid, a boy, it's a, it's a male disease with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And they're like, we hope you become richer than Elon Musk. You know? Some people I think argue that they say, well, if you charge a high amount to the insurance company, that means my premiums are going to be going even higher mm -hmm. and I have to pay for that. So you could make money. What is your Good. response? To Good. <laughs> well, healthcare is important. You know, I think that I think that we should pay more and more for healthcare. And what's funny is that we are. Um, since the '60s, healthcare as a percentage of GDP has gone up from six percent to like twenty percent. And I think over time it'll go to ninety percent. Why? Why is all of our GDP going to go to healthcare? Because it's the most important thing in our life. If you look at GDP percentage of GDP uh, from the '20s. Alcohol and tobacco were like 10% of GDP. <laughs> you know, we started, that started to taper off. Uh, rent, uh, it was a big part of GDP. And these things have changed where entertainment and healthcare have become like two of the biggest expenditures because the other necessities have become kind of cheap and yeah. we could live with, you know, food costs. You basically live with, you know, you can, you can find a way to eat for very little and things like that. Um, but for healthcare, it's a good, getting back to like economics class, the marginal demand for healthcare is never exhausted. You can never be healthy enough. I can have enough t-shirts. I can have enough square footage of apartment where I say, I don't need any more. I don't need a marginal demand for, for the next 10 square feet or the next 100 square feet. But for healthcare, yeah, it's pretty much like an infinite demand. I mean, I never want to be like less healthy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that that's going to drive this demand. And you're seeing it now with people like, uh, I think his name is Brian Johnson and yeah. other people who like longevity people. I'm kind of an anti-longevity person, but the idea that like people don't want to just be healthy, they want to be superhuman, you know, and uh, they want to live forever, which is like, you know, really like taking it to the, to the next level. And I think that's that the, the actions of like one actor like yeah. myself or somebody else has not changed the idea that the 6% has gone to 20%. That's a demand driven function. It's not because one person has said, no, my drug's going to be more expensive or something like that. It's more because people crave healthcare and 
there are mechanisms in place like generics. Um, there's actually alternative drugs, for example, to Daraprim. You know, you start off with saying it was a life-saving drug. It's not exactly true. And the media said that, you know, it was the only drug to treat that disease. That's also not true. I didn't mind correcting those, though, because uh, I didn't want to correct them, you know, because our fear actually was Daraprim would get competed by mm -hmm. this other really cheap drug that was available for like five cents uh, a pill. Ours was 750 a pill. But doctors didn't switch to the five cents a pill one because it's not exactly the same, but it works more or less, I think, just as well as Daraprim. And our biggest fear was that we did lose some customers to that, but we thought we'd lose them all. And all ABC had to do or New York Times had to do was say, Shkreli raises price of drug, alternative seen just as good. Use the alternative. That's all they had to do. And like imply strongly that, hey, no big deal. Use this other drug and he's going to lose all his business. They didn't do that. They should have. They wanted to paint you as the villain. I think, the, I think the story, the better story is right. that this drug has no alternative. And, and again, the drug is called Bactrim. You can look it up. So I was under the impression that that was the only solution. Then. No, it's called trimethoprim. Uh, it's, it's a very common antibiotic. It kills toxoplasmosis at the same rate as daraprim. And we were thrilled that nobody would say that out loud. Yeah. You're also getting a lot of publicity, I'm sure, from this whole, you know, being the most hated man in America. But real quick, yeah. how much money was that drug making? So, so yeah, we turned it. Yeah, sorry for the question. It, yeah, 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 keep going. So we turned it from three million to like, I, I want to say the asset value was something like half a billion to a billion, and the annual income was something like fifty to eighty million. Fifty to eighty million dollars. But it's every year. Three million. Yeah, well, three million one time. And, and you'd say that's the best investment you've made. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. Okay, now, very quickly and concise, <laughs> what's the worst investment you've made? Here's a crazy statistic for you. 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many other health problems, no one wants to talk about it. And also no one wants to take the time to deal with it. And that's why you should check out our sponsor, Hims. Hims is a 100% online platform that's changing the game when it comes to men's health. Hims provides simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, as well as hair loss, weight loss, and more. Treatments come in chewable tablets or pills. No doctor's office visits are required. And if prescribed, your medication will be shipped directly directly to you for free and discreet packaging. Plus, you don't need insurance. You'll pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging, and you could track everything on the Hims app. So if you're a part of the 52% of men and you're not getting the treatment you need, you can start with a free online visit today at hymns.com slash ICH. That's H-I-M-S.com slash ICH to get personalized treatment options or click the link down below in the description. Once again, it's hymns.com slash ICH. Prescription requires an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash ICH for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Thank you so much, Hims, and back to the episode. Okay, now, very quickly and <laughs> concise, what's the worst investment you've made? There's a lot of bad investments I've made over the years. Um, I think that the worst investments happen when you have the hubris that comes from good investments, and mm -hmm. you decide that your core competency extends to everything. So, like, the investments I'm the most mad about aren't necessarily investments that have maybe lost a lot of money. But they're like the worst from a philosophical perspective. So, for example, I put about a million dollars into a record label and a million dollars into an esports team. And both were zeros. But I've made zeros before. I've made bigger zeros before. But they've been in pharma, you know, where, where I know something about the field. Music is perfectly fine business. but It's not something I know anything about. And esports is also somewhat, maybe not perfectly fine business, but I'm sure you can make it work. But it's not something I know anything about. I just liked esports. Uh, and so those are just wastes of money, basically. And, you know, when you start finding yourself, you know, investing in restaurants, which a lot of rich people do, investing in real estate, 
you know, and you made all your money doing other stuff, you know, you're basically asking for it, you know, because, you know, what do you know about this stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you spent 10 or 20 years studying pharma to become good at pharma and you invest in pharma and you decide to take that money and invest in something else that you spend about five minutes on. Mm -hmm. And you're not correlating the fact that that hard work and that yeah. you know institutional knowledge you've built up is what's making you the money. Because if it was that easy and you were just a good investor, period, you know, um, you know, it'd be a lot easier to do that. And it's it turns out that for a lot of people that that does become their downfall. You know, yeah. what did what did you spend the money on that you made? Oh, I didn't really. I mean, I'm just an investor. I mean, I, I live very modestly. I'm not, you know, a spender, you know. Uh I've lived in like the same level of apartment I've had for a long time. Uh yeah, like when I saw the Vice documentary on you. I'm sure you could very easily have a penthouse somewhere in the nicest place of Manhattan, chauffeur all the time, Ferraris, watch collections, art collections. It seemed pretty, it seemed like you had Expensive more of albums. It, it seemed like you had more of an interest in, in playing a good game of, of chess. Yeah. No, I mean, I think like the, a lot of people, like for me, um, getting a good chance to read a lot in prison was a lot of fun. Um, like, those types of things are the most enjoyable things you can do, in my opinion. You know, money, I think, can't really get you the true happiness or the true thrills that, that you really like. So for me, like, if I could never make another dollar in the rest of my life or have a math theorem named after me that approved, like, a really tricky math theorem, I'd take the math theorem, you know, all, all day. Because, you know, it's an immortalization of, of, you know, something really tough to achieve. Anyone can make money. Look at Mark Cuban. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not hard, you know, I think that, you know, it's certainly from an intellectual perspective, not hard. I think psychologically it's, it's very hard, you know, but intellectually you don't have to be smart to make money. I mean, that's, you know, Warren Buffett said it a million times. He said, if you got 130 IQ points, sell 30 IQ points to get a burger and you're just as likely to make money with a hundred because, you know, unless you're in some really, really esoteric field, like, like biotech or, hardware engineering or something like that, which even still your, your massive intellect is not going to help you that much because drugs, a drug, it's really not that complicated. It's, it's about perseverance. It's so about, why do you think so many people are unsuccessful at things that they attempt? I think it's, it's, it's the number one reason is perseverance. I think Musk has said this as well. Like, you know, you give up, you get punched in the gut, you get punched in the face and, and you're on the floor and you're saying this sucks and entrepreneurship sucks. I had this feeling last night, um, you know, and I'm still going to go to work later. You know, I'm still going to going to keep fighting. And that's the hardest thing to cultivate is like, we're taught that like Pavlovian style that like you keep burning your hand on the stove, like it's time to time to leave. Mm. And that's, you know, it's human conditioning. And especially if you have family and friends are like, what are you doing? You could be making so much money, Jack, if you just go back to your old job, they're paying you good, you know, and you say, oh, I really got to try this. I got to Got to make sure. And they, well, you tried it. You've been at it two years and you failed. Go back to the old job or I'm divorcing you or something like that. And that pressure, societal pressure is really hard to overcome. And sometimes you are wrong. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, that doubt will seep into your head and you say, yeah, maybe she's right. Maybe I suck at this. And being an entrepreneur is like, you know, masochistic activity. I mean, you really have to be out of your mind and a well-adjusted person just take the job that pays you good and have a family and be, be cool, you know, be, be able to do your hobbies and being an entrepreneur is like, no, you're, you're up at 3am answering customer service call or something. Or like you're noticing at 1am, oh, this, this thing is broken on our website. We got to fix that. Like that life sucks. You know, there's, there's nothing good about that. You know, it's, it's basically like, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are come from a place of trauma 
abuse, people who have, um, this old hedge fund guy, Michael Sternhardt, used to only like to hire orphans mm. <laughs> because they were so used to being abused and unhappy and they could never reach self-actualization where they, they basically could never be good enough. They always would try to be good enough, but they can never be good enough. I think a lot of entrepreneurs like that. And if you read Elon's biography or anybody else's, like I came from like an abusive household and, and so forth. But if you are a normal person that like does normal things and, and, you know, is, is happy with what you've got in life, which is the way you should be, entrepreneurship doesn't make sense. But if you have a megalomaniac personality or you just want to satisfy a thing you can never satisfy or things like that, that's where the entrepreneur comes in. And I think those, those people are, including myself, you know, just, just are wired differently and in, not really in a good way from a psychological perspective. But we also need those people. You know, Ayn Rand said that the ego is the fountainhead of all progress. I think it's true. You know, I think ultimately without a little bit of ego and without a little bit of that, you know, uh, you know, rivalry and uh, competition and, and things like that, competitiveness, you know, nothing would happen. You know, somebody needs to have started the company that you can work the cushy job at. <laughs> you know, and I think that's that's kind of like what the entrepreneur's role is. But it comes from a place of usually some like somewhat dark stuff. I mean, I do think there are people that, you know, um, have been entrepreneurs and they've they've done it the uh, maybe in a more positive light. But I know thousands of entrepreneurs like it's, this is a common trait I see is like there's some like I was talking to Palmer Lucky the other day, like uh, I mentioned him twice now, but uh you know, he, he, I haven't caught up with him in, in a while. And, and the first thing he said was just like, Martin, I got to prove that I'm not a one-trick pony. And it's like, sold up, you created Oculus at 19. You sold it to Facebook for $3 billion, right? Most people, it's over. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. you're a king of the world. <laughs> you know, like, right. to, how do you top that? He's, but he gets fired at Facebook, right? For being right-wing. And man, it put lights of fire under his ass. And he could just invest his money for the rest of his right. life, Right. Uh, he's got the best deal flow. Everyone's coming to Palmer to, for investments. He says, I'm not going to invest in anybody else. And I think he hasn't. And he starts a defense company, which is kind of wild. There hasn't been a new defense company in 50 years. And the defense company is now worth more than he sold Oculus. Wow. It's like worth like $10 billion. And it's like, and he's sitting there saying, I got to prove I'm not a one-trick pony. It's like, to who? <laughs> what are you going to prove to anyone anything, dude? And And, you know, I didn't say that, but, you know, the reality is that's what drives people like that. You know, it's, it's this, the one hater like Jason Calcanis or something like that. It's like, I'm going to make you regret you know, ever doubting me. I'm going to make it so bad for you. You're going to be so embarrassed. And like, you find that foil of like the, and it becomes the object of your attention and the object of your obsession to make this guy look bad yeah. forever talking how shit do you, about you. How do you deal with all the criticism, all the hate? All the negativity. That I don't get any anymore. It's 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 frustrating. It's almost but, like. But initially going through it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you're, you're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. How do you how do you deal with that? Was there ever a point where you were afraid to walk outside or embarrassed to to be out in public or was? No, he would dox himself. Yeah. He would like he would go on live streams, and I remember this. And you'd be like, "I'm walking right in front of this this building on this street. Come and see me. You're gonna make you're gonna meet my friend." Like my <laughs> I remember I saw that video of you. You want to punch me? Come find me. 40th Street, 2nd Avenue. Let's just say it's not going to end well. You're going to meet my friend here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would do stuff like that so, somewhat for fun and somewhat. But would people ever show up? Real. Not really. I mean, like, <laughs> no. You know, <laughs> you, you wouldn't think. It, it was weird because, like, I think people, this goes back to, like, another, like, theory or thesis I have, like, that really made sense of, like, 2015, that experience for me. 
people who hate things tend to not hate them on a scale of one to 10. They hate them with a very low passion. So you see a news article or something like that that you don't like. Uh, you sort of superficially hate it. The amount of people that superficially hate it is a lot. So you add up the hate units, it's a ton of hate. It's dispersed hate that's not really focused. Uh, and that kind of hate you could change people's minds quickly. It's the hate that's like a 10, where somebody's like, no, I fucking hate it. It's a this. personal thing. Yeah, dude. I really don't like this guy specifically. I know everything about him, and, and I've thought it through, and I really, really don't like this guy. That's the hate that you got to watch out for. And uh, that's usually happens when you did something really bad. Mm -hmm. And the little hate is, is sort of like, oh, yeah, I saw it. He looks like a jerk. Yeah. you know. But it's not – it doesn't stick because it's not really rooted in something real. You know, it's a, it's a painting and it's an act. It's like being an actor. And I enjoyed that, which is why I did stuff like that. And which is why at some point in these interviews, I was like, this person's not going to say nice, something nice about me. Let me play you into this. You know, and I enjoyed WWE and, and stuff like that growing up and still do to some extent. And it was like, okay, you want a bad guy? Like I can, I can be a bad guy. This will be funny, you know? Uh, and they, they'd be like, they'd be like, can you believe what he just said? And I'm like, I'm making fun of it because like, I go back to the office and like be like, yo, did you see that interview? And they're like, yeah, man, you, you know, or like my brother or something like that. And they'd be like, you know, you, you really, you know, it's so funny because you're not like that. But, you know, you, you, I was like, I'm, this is 15 minutes of fame. Like, I'm going to get a gag out of this. You know, I, I'm going to put one over on these, these guys because, you know, it's just some, it's just sort of fun, like how gullible and, and sort of stupid some of these people are. But for them, it's catnip because it's like, they have to sell pathos, right? Like they have to sell some emotional rise. And I fit really well into that. You know? I think you leaned into it. Oh yeah. Safe yeah. to say. I mean, like that infamous video of you saying, I plead the fifth. I'm going to exercise my right to plead the fifth yeah, yeah, yeah. to every single question that they were asking to you in that courtroom. And also obviously the Wu-Tang Clan album. Why did, why does it, do you think that you lean into this like troll or like quote unquote evil person role and you seem to like enjoy it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's entertainment. So if you look at, I remember going to a WWE show or, you know, whatever event, and it's not easy to get people to hate you. You know, you, you can try the best bad guys in WWE. They're really talented because you can say, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but I saw The Rock uh, perform and The Rock came out, this is in Brooklyn, and he ad-libbed his whole speech. And he spoke for like 30 minutes. Every single person in that stadium was standing up in spellbound because he is that good at what he does. And including myself. And I was just like a kid in a candy store. I was like listening to this grown man, you know, just talking about nothing. But I was just like, this guy's the best. <laughs> you know, like that was the feeling I got. And it's, it's an amazing thing to be able to bring that feeling about in somebody. And the opposite's true. If you can get, and you know, they'll troll out a bad guy and they'll have John Cena body slam him or something. But the bad guy comes out. If he can actually make you feel like, oh, I fucking hate that guy. You know, that's not easy because he's, he, it's an act in that case. And in my case, you know, it's an act too. But as I said earlier, I, I tweeted that, you know, I'm, I'm a person of color. And normally that would get people really mad. I'm kind of disappointed that I don't have somebody from <laughs> the New York Times or Wall Street Journal being like, I'm going to write a piece about this. You know, da, da, da. it doesn't work anymore. You know, so, so how do you get people to pissed off? And again, I, I guess, you know, like one of the things of being a rebel and, and stuff like that is it's a lot of fun. It's always been a lot of fun for me, for somebody who's like, I don't know how to, how to put this, like somebody who's like too 
uh, wound up or too um, like they, their personality is like they take themselves too seriously. Like poking fun at those types of people is a lot of fun for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and like trying to get someone to lighten up and not take themselves too seriously. And so like whenever you see that dynamic and like somebody's like really strict authoritarian because like they, they really believe in the rules or a hall monitor and stuff like that, it's it's great to like, you know, just sort of needle that and and see that like somebody like fly into a rage over like something completely, you know, benign. And I think like the the world's sort of like changed a lot in the last five years that people just don't really react like the way they used to. So to understand the timeline in its entirety, do, first of all, as a quick one word answer, do you think that if you did with Daraprim nowadays, the same thing nowadays, that it would elicit the same exact response? Or do you think it wouldn't have been such a big deal? No, probably a lot less. Okay. So to understand the Daraprim thing, you bought this pill, obviously, to everybody with this condition. It's extremely important. There was another drug that could have been brought to light that they can use that's a lot cheaper, but you bought this pill. You raised the price 5,000%. And then was it that that ticked off everybody and thought that you were like the most evil person? Or was it the tweet in response to Hillary Clinton calling you out for that? There's no excuse. Look. We, we want companies to get a fair return. That's the way our system works. There's no excuse from going from $13.50 to $750 for one pill. Is that Why do you say that? Like, I do think it's probably more <clears throat> of a reaction than the actual event. Mm-hmm. And I think the reaction was more potent socially that I was basically saying these two gigantic parts of society, the media and government, are basically fake and you don't have to pay attention to them and you can tell them that they have no power and that they are impervious to, to you're impervious to their power. And that was a big problem because if you do that and the media, people start to realize like, Oh yeah, the media can write a story about you, but you can show them your middle finger. And so, so that'll be a bigger show, story. How did you show people that? Uh, it's where, you know, things like social media. So Hillary Clinton, she called you out and then you responded back on social media. Yeah. In such a way that would, we'll show the tweet right here. Right, right, exactly. And, and, and what's funny about it is that that response is so unusual because people cower in fear over the media because they can put your name out there. Mm-hmm. And they cower in fear over the government because they throw you in a jail cell. But if you tell both those parties, I don't care, go ahead, do your worst. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like so uh, emas- not emasculating, but that's so like it, it removes their power and that's what they demand you don't go to work for, for Vice or the New York Times for the money, right? You go to work for those companies because you can write five sentences that ruin somebody's life. And, and you could put those, you have that much power. But if you tell those people, I refuse to let you, you know, have that power over me, you know, write whatever you want. I and you care. get hundreds of articles writing you well, then being they double the most down evil here. person in America. Then they might double down. Kick in, the, <clears throat> kick in the bee's nest and they'll do anything they can to not only silence you, but also make an example. Because if you get away with this, right. it completely destroys everything that they built up. And if you could get away with it, Jack could get away with it. Exactly. I could get away with exactly. it. So they almost have to retaliate in such a way that it's mandatory. So do you think that was the reason why 100%. they found a way to put you in jail? I started to tell journalists that, you know, if you investigate me, I'll investigate you. <laughs> and, and, and what I did to people is if like their name was, you know, Jack Salby or their name was Matt, Matt Stevens, I would buy mattstevens.com. I would just go and go daddy pay 12 bucks, I'd buy it. And I'd say, hey, guess what? There's a new website about you. It's called mattstevens.com. And it's got everything about Matt Stevens, including your worst photos. Your worst, like, I, I like you know, just through the photos and be like, there you are, aren't you? Isn't Don't that you? you have the time to do this? Isn't it better? Just if they're going to say something, you ignore it. You do it. that you, personally? You just like... 
<laughs> How much were you worth at the time doing that? It doesn't matter. I mean, I think that the the point is that, you know, the reciprocity and the symmetry is not appreciated. You Do know, you think I, that's the same though? I mean, you're like- It is. You, you I wanna, mean, probably, honestly, it sounds ludicrous, but I think it actually, at its base level, is the, basically the same exact thing. And if anything, they have more of an audience because it's already a renowned publication. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like you you have no problem prying into somebody's personal life, but when somebody does it to you, you are aghast. You are shocked and, and dismayed that somebody would do that. Why? You do it every day. You do it for a fucking living. Wouldn't you get further ahead personally had you just That's focused like on question. something? <laughs> I know. I don't think it mattered at all to him, Graham. I, I get it. but You do like only I, live once. <laughs> I understand it satisfies like the eye for an eye where, hey, if you're going to poke me, I'm going to poke you right back. And I'm going to do a little more just to, you know, just to, because it's unprovoked here. But to me, it seems like if they poke you, the ideal solution would be, all right, whatever, I'm just going to keep doing my thing. There's deterrence as well. It's like, okay, you poke, poke me, be careful how you poke and where you poke and how you do it because I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. Really want to poke me, then, you know, be prepared for, for some kind of like, do it when it makes sense to do it. You know, if you're just doing it just to do it, you know, it it's... If there's no consequences to a journalist's action, which there aren't, true, you know, there, there's something like, and again, we're seeing that today with Bill Ackman. We're seeing that today with with a bunch of other people, Elon, and others, where it's a Dave Portnoy. You know, um, a lot of people feel like they've been railroaded by the media because, again, you don't go to work at New York Times because they're going to pay you a lot. You go to work in New York Times because you love having this power to be able to destroy somebody, or you have more likely a mix of that and some kind of agenda, some kind of mindset about the world that you want to sort of make more of. And, and again, you know, I don't have a problem with the New York Times, believe it or not. And a lot of people don't like the, the fact that I kind of like the New York Times because it's, it is actually probably the last place in the world that's like halfway decent journalism. And again, my friends will crucify me for saying this, but uh, it's just how I feel. I think they do a good job, but pick up a copy of the New York Times. It doesn't take long reading the New York Times to realize that there's a fairly deep agenda of what's news, what's good, what's bad. It's filtered through the human lens and an editor lens. The editors turn out to be far more important than the reporters. We tend to give the reporters a lot of flack. It turns out that the editors tell the reporters what to write about and they write the headlines and they obviously they change the piece to see how they fit. Uh, and those people never get really in the spotlight. You know, there are people in the, in the back that you don't hear about. And it's one of the kind of misunderstood features of media that it's the editor really calling the shots here. And the editors have this like view that they can shape the way the world perceives, you know, I guess the way people perceive the world just through what they write about, just through how they talk about it. And that's true. Mm -hmm. and that's a lot of power. You know, if you're able to tell the world, okay, this is how you should look at things. This is the lens through you should examine the current state of affairs. It's a, it's a big deal, you know, and and I think that to tell somebody like that, well, nowadays my one of my tweets reaches more people than one of your articles. You know, one of Elon's tweets reaches a lot more than any of those articles. So, how do you compete with that? You can't, and that's why, like, when you say that you can't affect me, it, you're telling the truth. You're, you're basically saying, you know, so every time I get an interview request or like from a newspaper or something like that, like, do you have a quote on this? Like, if I had a quote on this, I would tweet about it. I don't need you to propagate yeah. my quote. So and, who did you upset to go to jail? <laughs> That's a good question. And, and I think it's more complicated than, than the standard line of like, well, you know, somebody, some deep shadowy person got angry at you and therefore you, 
you know, uh, went to jail. I do think, and my, my, my very experienced criminal defense attorney who's just a fantastic person in general, Ben Braffman, he says, you, you wouldn't have gone to jail if you kept your mouth shut and you didn't, you know, raise the price of a drug or you didn't defend yourself for raising the price of a drug. You right. probably would have been fine even if you raised the price, but you just backed down, you would have been fine. I think that the meta of like, you know, there's allegations that I committed an actual crime and I was found guilty of three of those eight accusations. What were those three, by the way? Yes, the securities fraud. Um, but I was, I'm so proud of the five, you know, that we got acquitted of because you never get acquitted of anything. Like you're always convicted of every charge. Liz, Elizabeth Holmes got off on a couple as well. Uh, SBF, guilty on all counts. You know, it's almost always you're guilty on all counts. Um, so the fact that we got majority acquitted was like such a big win because I'm like, I didn't do any of this bullshit. And the three were related to a hedge fund uh, that I managed. And it was just such a, a lot of people in the hedge fund industry who know the industry are like, I wouldn't have convicted you for that. Is it common practice, whatever fraud activity that you did within this? I would say fund? no. You know, I, I'm not saying that I'm 100% innocent, but I don't think what I did rose to the level of a crime. I mm -hmm. think it was like bad paperwork, sloppy, you know, but not like overtly dishonest or, or can you say what it is exactly? Not really. Because was? this was like, it was such <clears> a, you know, the way these draws or laws are written up, it's like kind of amorphous. It was just sort of lying to investors and it doesn't matter if you make them a lot of money, but if you lie in any way, shape or form, you're guilty technically of security. What did they say the lie was? There was a number of little ones that all kind of added up to a general kind of like sense of lying. But again, if you make a lot of money, you know, I think that every time you buy a stock, you listen to a conference call, like <laughs> there's something in there that's false. Like there, there just always is, you know, or will prove to be false or something like that. But you generally have a little bit of safe harbor around kind of like, well, statements I make may not turn out to be true. <laughs> statements I make, you know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it doesn't really matter. The way the law is constructed is they push a button and you're found guilty. That's it. There's no real, yeah. you know, this facade that there's like due process and all that stuff is, is nonsense. So do you think they threw a whole bunch at the wall and then they said, well, now we can investigate and we're going to find something in one of these. So we have enough where we're going to dig something up. No, I think that there was, um, I think that's, it's, it, it's tempting to want to believe that. And it makes me look the best, but I think the reality is like all business people have some regulatory or government pressure of some kind, you know, and right now Elon's got like coming from everywhere, but even Warren Buffett, if you look at his book, uh, Snowball, the book about him, mm -hmm. he, he had SEC investigation. I mean, he, he thought he was going to jail. Um, and he's like supposed to be the most honest business person of all time. Jack Ma wrote that Bill Gates said something positive about Alibaba in early Alibaba's early days. Uh, he did not. He never met Bill Gates. <laughs> he said, when confronted about it, he said, I think it was something Bill Gates would say if he knew who I was. Could you imagine doing that? <laughs> you know, that's that's securities fraud. 100%, right? That's securities fraud. 100%. You and can't you can make up that Bill Gates endorsed you. Federal prison. Absolutely. For that. You make up for that Bill Gates- a publicly traded company? Oh, yeah. It's or big it, news. I yeah. mean, you know, if somebody was influenced by Bill Gates's fake endorsement of you, which, you know, is possible, you know, you've, you've, you've lied to somebody, in essence. So essentially, you lied to the investors about how you were investing the money or something like that, but- this is what you've said in interviews. They still got the returns that they would have loved to get. Yeah, they got and some of the best returns, yeah. <laughs> you famously claim that you still get Christmas cards yeah. from a lot of the investors. Yeah. 
that yeah. you had. I mean, was there a single investor that was upset with what you did? Yeah. Yeah. So there were investors that were upset. Yep. You know, it, it, it's hedge fund investors are hard to please. <laughs> you know, they're generally very, very wealthy people that, you know, are, you know, they can be very picky. They can be very hard to please. But, you know, again, I think that it's something that, you know, I, I've moved on from because ultimately you can indict anyone for anything. And the president, uh, former president, Donald Trump, is four different indictments and four different crimes in four different places, which I've met some of the craziest criminals you've ever, you'll ever know, between mob bosses to cartel to, you know, bloods, crips, you name it, uh, every gang in the country to masterminds of, you know, fraud and theft and computer hacking and stuff like that. I've never met a single person that has four separate indictments. There's <laughs> four separate places. And I think this has laid bare the justice system. Like this is going to collapse the, basically the justice system one way or another. What predictions do you have for the justice system? Well, unfortunately, I, I so there's a couple of problems here. Um, I, I do think they're at some point going to try to put the president, former president in prison, which is really unfortunate. Now, he does seem to be doing a fantastic job, and I'm, I'm rooting for him to be clear, of beating the charges, which is surprising because it's hard to do. But he has two state cases and two Fed cases. State's easier than, than Fed. Um, but he has one Fed case that looks really bad. But he seems to have found that the prosecutor uh, of the case, I think that's a state case actually, um, in one of his state cases, his prosecutor, which is the case they kind of have him dead to rights on, the prosecutor is actually, you know, has, has been doing something bad herself. This is actually one of the best ways to get a case thrown out is when you show that the, well, you know, if I'm such a bad guy, look at them, they're committing crime too. And I actually had this in my own case where we found that our prosecutor was talking and revealing details of the case to a journalist. And that's illegal. It's, it's illegal in the United States of America for a U.S. attorney to reveal grand jury testimony and grand jury minutes to anyone. How did I know that this happened? I dated the girl. <laughs> so, you dated the journalist? It's a big thing in L, L Magazine, yeah. I, when we broke up, um, I dated, I dated Christy and she was the Bloomberg reporter about me and we fell in love. And she told well, me, how, would, point, how would how she be writing these yeah. negative articles on you though? Meanwhile, she was getting fed data from the prosecutor. But you guys weren't dating at the time. No. This was after. Wow. And so her ed editors hated me. They pressured her to write more and more negative articles. She started to push back and say, actually, I'm not sure this story is a hundred percent you know, he's the bad guy. She's like, man, he's kind of cute. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that smile. Yeah. But, 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 you know, regardless, like they, they pressure her so much that inevitably they, they kind of fired her. And, you know, we had, we had our thing, but th that was actually found, this tidbit was found by somebody else mm. um, in a separate case where the guy did the same thing. And the attorney general of Philadelphia went to jail for this. You cannot call the media and say, hey, I'm about to indict Jack. Do you know that? We're going to be at his house at 6 a.m. Make sure the cameras are there because, you know, they're, they're sending the SWAT team because, you know, he's dangerous. You know, and, and they sent the SWAT team for Roger Stone. They sent the SWAT team for me. It's like, who, what's Navy SEAL Team Seal 6 doing here? What, it's not a SWAT team, but, you know, but it's what, guys with guns. It's 12 guys. What was that guys. like? Did they just straight up, like, bust through the door so, 4 o'clock So they the have morning? a door buster, but they ring the bell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's just in case. It's, it's so resting on their, on their arm right beside them. I yep. was imagining, like, straight up, Thrown like they stun do, grenades they do, they in the window. People. They do it for drug dealers, okay. you know. But for you, they ring the bell. They, but it's they politely no. It's like yeah, and it's six a.m. and it's like, look, all you have to do is call the lawyer and say, we've made the decision. 
we are going to indict Mr. Shkreli. Please report to, you know, the judge's office at 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. And there wouldn't be 100 cameras. There wouldn't be the shock and awe of being arrested at 6 a.m. by 12 fucking FBI agents. That was a big show. Well, it's a show and it's supposed to scare you into pleading guilty. It's supposed to scare you into, it's supposed to embarrass you. It's supposed to cause all this collateral damage. It's to poison the jury pool so that when you actually do, if you do fight the case, which nobody does, you go to trial and everybody knows you're already, you know, kind of a bad guy. It's, it's, it's a real, it's a system that just doesn't work. I mean, 99% of federal cases get convictions, 99%. In state, it's, in Baltimore, it's actually close to 50-50 now. In uh, New York and other states, it's like 60, 70 it's not good chances, but it's not 99%. Hmm. Um, I dare you to try to find an actual acquittal where somebody said not guilty. You know, it's almost impossible. And it's it's just a system that doesn't really make sense. And I think that now we're starting to see that, that pressing a button is a guarantee of conviction. And um, fighting it makes it worse, which is something that Alan Dershowitz, uh, who's this very important attorney, but also was Epstein's attorney, um, uh, and OJ's attorney, um, has been writing a lot of, you know, academic articles about that. If you actually go to trial to challenge your, your conviction or your, uh, you know, soon to be conviction, um, that you end up getting a much worse punishment hmm. and because you're wasting, you know, the, the, the time of the government and the judicial resources, which is just, wow, this is what they do in Russia and China. Like this is not, you know, government's not always right, you know, and unfortunately for whatever reason, like we've evolved this system of like, the prosecutor becomes famous because they get to go in front of the podium. They say, today we arrested President Trump, blah, blah, blah. And that woman from uh, the attorney general of, of Georgia is very famous now. Fanny, get her last name. But because she's the prosecutor, our attorney general in New York, Letitia James, who I've done a lot of battle with, she's famous now too. And she has a chance of becoming, guess what? The governor. And she's AG as attorney general, but it's also aspiring governor. <laughs> because, you know, she actually did run for governor briefly, but Kathy Hochul had the had it in the bag, so she quit. But eventually, she's going to run for governor again. How do you get the you know celebrity to run for governor? Well, if you're the big top cop and you you beat up all the bad guys like Donald Trump and Martin Scully and the NRA and folks like that, well, oh yeah, I like that lady. She's good. You know, let's make her governor. You know, that's the way that you know she gets publicity. And it's sad because you know it's like not about justice. We have a lot of homelessness. We have a lot of crime. We got a lot of issues in New York. Uh, and she could be focused on that, but she's focused inward on, well, as a governor, I'm in charge of a lot of people. I'm going to make a lot of money. Why do I care about crime? <laughs> you know, Some crime. of it, I feel like, like you said, is publicity. It's what's going to get the most attention. And if you're marketing yourself, fixing homelessness is not going to get you the same attention as going after that big guy that everyone is talking about. That's going to get you in the media outlets. Oh, especially if people in, in this state, um, not all of the state, but certainly in, in parts of New York, don't like Trump, even though he's from here. And uh, people like him kind of built New York. But regardless, a lot of people don't like him. Uh, sure. You know, I mean, being the person that arrested Trump, you're, you're, you're a great person to those people and those voters. And, you know, versus some anonymous person you never heard of, who's going to get the votes? So, of course, like, I think that dishonesty is like coming to fruition. Like a lot of the backhanded and kind of sloppy ways that some of these prosecutors have put together these cases have more and more been like, you know, is this really fair? Is this the way we should be doing justice? Like, you know, arrest the person who's unpopular? Is 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 that really, justice is supposed to be blind, you know? It's supposed to be like, no, this is going to be fair, no matter what. And um, it tends to not be the way it works. Um, but again, I I have the strength to say, I'll take jail on full, full force. Mm-hmm. I have the strength to say, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Screw it. What was your initial reaction going to jail? 
I, I was I was optimistic, you know. Was there not any part of you that was scared or nervous or thinking? Not I'm scared, but certainly time. nervous and frustrated, you know. Uh, not scared, you know. I tend to not get scared. <laughs> um, uh. But the annoyed, for sure. Frustrated that I was there. Feeling out of place. You know, I, I grew up in, in the inner city in Brooklyn. And I felt like I returned. <laughs> you know, I basically felt like I was in the hood again. And the good thing is that that wasn't new to me. A lot of like rich white guys go to jail and they're just fucking petrified because it's like I, I've never been around black people before or something like that. And it's like, I'm just going back to my roots. <laughs> you know, this is easy. And uh, within, within half an hour, I was playing chess and yakking it up with dudes and doing fine. So you would say it was an enjoyable experience or something that... I would say it was enjoyable. Least- you can find enjoyment from it. Okay. Yeah. No, it's a terrible experience, to be clear. But okay. you, you know, if you if you let it get you down, it's going to be much worse. Do and you ever miss jail? That's a really tough one. I think about that sometimes. I would say no, but you know, there are like accidental like byproducts of prison that are are good. I was talking to one of the world's biggest investors about this. Um, this is a person who loves to read and um, just locks himself away and reads all day, and. I said that, you know, that's what I got to do in prison. I read hundreds of books and it was great. Uh, I didn't like other things, but that part I liked. And today, since I've been uh, home, I've not read, I don't think, one book cover to cover. <laughs> that's just the nature of the society we live in where we have phones buzzing and things distracting us. And, you know, can you sit, really sit there and read cover to cover, page to page, a, a full two, three, four hundred page book? And it's like, no. You don't have time for it. Is it dangerous at all? Because you hear a lot of the stories of people who go to jail and they say, oh, I saw someone get killed in front of me and I've seen all these fights and you kind of got to stay to yourself. Is that is there truth to that or is it just dependent on where you there's, are? There's truth to that. Um, I think it's, it's kind of one of these things where you can find danger anywhere. You know, um, if I look at the last six years, the most dangerous situation I was in was probably in, on, on the subway station like six months ago or something like that, you know? It's not, you know, something in prison. If you act like an idiot, you know, you're, you're going to win idiot prizes. You know, it's, uh, you know, uh, and you could do that anywhere. You know, there's no guns in there. There's guns out here. There's no, you know, like, you know, it's for a lot of people in gangs, especially, which obviously I'm not that kind of person, but for people in gangs, jail's actually the safe place. You get killed out there. Uh, they'll shoot you. In, inside jail, you're kind of like, protected by the system there's cops around at all times doesn't mean you can't get hurt but it it sort of means that you're not in the same wild west it's sort of like time out for gangsters uh you play cards watch tv you know work out read books if you're you like s- me do you still keep in touch with any of your your prison so, so according to probation i'm not allowed to te- technically mm. it's it's not a it's not a rule they care that much about but um technically you're not allowed to maintain contact what happened on the subway six months ago? Nothing special. It's New York City subway. <laughs> you know, it's, City subway. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I just I hate it when when there's some belligerent person on the subway and I look at the as the situation that happened. Old Chinese lady like sitting next to me starts like grabbing her purse and like shrinking down. I'm like, you shouldn't be afraid to take the subway, you know. Uh, and the more guys that don't. I'm no, you know, I'm no superhero, <laughs> but like every guy, every like red-blooded man has to do their part to be like, no, I'm not going to let you terrorize this old lady, you know, who's like, looks like she's about to, you know, have a heart attack. You got to, you know, you got to do something as a man. And, you know, it's just a frustrating thing to sort of see that. And 
you know, a lot of people say it's not my problem. It's not my problem. And yeah, there's stories every now and then where you make it your problem and you get shot, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a terrible thing, you know? So, but ultimately like, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating to see what's happened to, you know, New York and San Fran and other places, Chicago, where it's like, look, you know, the crazy people are running the, running the city and it's, you know, San Fran, uh, I mean, you park your car for five minutes, someone's breaking into yep. it. You know, it's like, what, what, why do we let this happen? And the answer is, like, we can't all become police ourselves. You know, I don't think that's the right solution, but we also can't do nothing. You know, the idea that we have to lock up, you know, grocery stores with lock up like deodorant. It's not even <laughs> somebody had to steal. lock them up. They're shutting down. Right. Right. I think Target was one of those in San Francisco. They should. Straight up, they said, our, we have uh, too many people stealing stuff from our store. And so it's unprofitable, it's unprofitable. for us to be here. So we're just going to leave. Yeah. The margins are low enough yeah. that if you lose one product at 100% gross margin, the rest of your gross margin is 10%, that every one good that's stolen pays, you lose the money of 10 goods that, yeah. you know, would have, would have, uh, uh, that you would have sold. So pretty, pretty terrible thing. And again, you know, who might have fixed society, but I think it's like, you know, just sad to see. And and again, there's a lot of like this return to like masculinity and I never thought I'd be like <laughs> uh, somebody that could represent that. But I do think like in a lot of ways, this return to like normative behavior um, is something that, you know, there was this era of like toxic masculinity and like, you don't hear about it anymore because it's like, you know, actually it's kind of something that, you know, a little bit of masculinity isn't so bad. And whether that's challenging authority or standing up to somebody who's bullying you or, or whatever, you know, I think that more and more you're seeing that return in, in getting back to normalcy and getting back to kind of the, the place we were before, which I, I think is good. I have a question on big pharma. A lot of people have speculated that there are plenty of different drug companies that have solutions for chronic illnesses, but prevent the solutions from ever being public since medication for the rest of your life is more profitable. Is this actually the case for some of big pharma? No, and I, I think this is like the the dumbest, craziest conspiracy theory. A lot of people talk about. A it. lot of people do, and and yeah, I've I've heard that it's so nuts. The same thing. Yeah, I mean, if you ever did a little bit of science, you learn that like it doesn't go that well. So it's <laughs> that just you, an objective no as a response. A, like there's put, that theory that like oh fun. they've cured cancer, but they don't want to come out with it yet because they still have money to. Be I don't made know. I think like, I think you can say stuff that sounds like a conspiracy until it's proved true by some random person somewhere. Sometimes and the thing is, it's happened a lot. The problem is, it yeah, sounds recently. believable enough. Yeah, that the, someone would have a cure, but especially they don't in the wake of everything it. going on, or maybe they're trying to shop it around. What's the thing is, if you don't know the industry, it could could make more sense than it does. So the drug industry has about a thousand companies in it. And drug company 22 does not give a flying fuck about drug company one mm. or two or three. Number one is Johnson Johnson. Pfizer is like number eight now as they've kind of fucked up. Uh, but like, let's say Merck's working on a cancer drug and it would hurt Pfizer a lot mm -hmm. because it would be a one-time cure. And this actually happened. Gilead is a, a company in California. They made the Hep C cure. There was a company that was going to lose out a lot because they sold a more of a chronic treatment for Pepsi. Gilead didn't give a shit that that company would get hurt. They put out their cure ASAP and they made a ton of money. It was actually one of the best selling drugs of all time because if you have a cure, you can price it higher as if it was going to be used, used for, for a lifetime. Yeah. And, and then you see that a lot these days where drug companies aren't stupid. They're, they're, they, so the central premise of you make more money in chronic versus acute is wrong. You know, the drug I was talking about earlier is $2.3 million. It's called Zolgensma. Yeah. How many doses do you have to take with Zolgensma? It's a gene therapy. It rewrites the DNA in your genes. So it fixes you. And you never need it again. 
they pay two point three million, and they actually set up an installment payment with some of the insurance companies. Where it's like, look, if you want to pay two hundred thousand dollars a year for ten years, we'll do that. You know, but you're paying two point three million one way or the other, and you know, it's it's a uh, you know, there's the hunt. It's it, the reason I don't like it this much is well, obviously not true, but it's very insulting to the people that work at drug companies who all have the diseases, their family members, et cetera. A lot of people get into the industry to make a difference. And Alzheimer's is one of these diseases that's going to, I mean, we're starting to cure cancer for real and heart disease and things like that. What's left is something like Alzheimer's, something like these terrible genetic diseases. But after that, I don't even see a future for pharma where it's like, Look, our problems are solved. You know, yep. um, couldn't couldn't certain genes continue to mutate? So you have to continue to keep up with medications, or maybe viruses are able to mutate and viruses, new things come yeah, up. Infectious and, disease probably yeah. will never be you know fully solved. But like, if you think about something like heart disease, there haven't been a lot of new medicines for a long time because if you have high blood pressure, man, there's like sixty five ways to lower it through drugs. If you have high cholesterol, there's a lot of ways. Uh, it's not really a lot left to do there, you know? Uh, the same thing applies in some of these other illnesses. Like autoimmune, at, at this point, we've got like 50 kinds of autoimmune drugs. You've got autoimmune disease. You know, we wipe out your B cells, your T cells, your this or that. I mean, there's a way to do it. Um, same thing with derm. Same thing with uh, uh, eye medicine. Like, there's just not much left. The, the, I feel like allergies would be a big one, like a peanut allergy. Imagine they there came are, up with a there cure. There are medicines for that. Uh, you know, a cure. Yeah, they, it's tough. Uh, they're working on those too, but like there's such slim pickings left. Like Alzheimer's is like this big one central big problem that has no real treatment yet. That's the one that I think is going to be like pharma's last hurrah. And then after that, it's like you, you see Lily with, with, uh, and Lily and Nova with, with their GLP ones, like Ozempic. And this is like a cosmetic thing more than a medical thing. And I think you're going to see more of that happening, but ultimately like pharma, the people that work at pharma, the scientists that publish papers, they're, they're researching really difficult stuff and they write papers and they publish them and they went to school and they're doing really tough experiments. Some of these clinical trials cost $100 million. It's kind of insulting to those people to say like, or you're like somehow like not being forthright about your work because a lot of it is out in the sort of open and like put out there. And like in patents, you can look at the data that they want over a patent. And you're fighting so hard to make these medicines that it'd be very weird to succeed in making one and then not put it out. It'd be like, well, we want to make money. And they're very, these companies are very short-sighted because the owners are publicly, they're all publicly traded. So there's no one family that's like, oh, we're making more money this right. way. So let's not you know, put it out. It's all publicly traded. The board directors aren't even stockholders. The CEO gets paid based on earnings per share for this year <laughs> and next year. So they, they actually put out more medicines maybe than they, they like. Just the opposite incentive exists for them mm. to put out as many medicines as they can in the near term. And they'd rather, you know, blow out earnings this year, next year than actually, you know, hurt earnings. They'd, they don't care about earnings in the long run, you know, because they won't be there for the long run. Yeah. Did you get the COVID vaccine? I did. I did. And how much confidence did you have in it at the time? How much confidence do you have in it now? Yeah, great questions. Um, so I know a lot about medicine, I think. Um, I had confidence in it then. I still have some confidence in it now. The thing about um, public health is it's like this different branch of medicine. So if, if we took a blood pressure um, medicine that was new and we gave 50 people or 500 people or 5,000 people like you the drug, we didn't tell you whether it was drug or placebo, and we gave the same amount of people like you 
uh, placebo, at the end of the study, we could figure out, okay, you didn't have blood pressure reduction. You had 10 millimeters systolic reduction. And drug gets approved. And it's very reasonable to believe that this drug creates a 10 millimeter systolic blood pressure reduction. That's a system of medicine we've had for so long. And it works. It's evidence-based medicine. It's an experiment. Public health is different. <laughs> the problem with public health is that it doesn't work this way. So you can prove, which I believe they did, that the vaccine works. And they proved it in a clinical trial. Far less people got COVID when they got the vaccine than didn't. And unless there's a conspiracy that I can't even conjure in my mind, and remember, I've been to jail, um, it's very hard for me to imagine that two different sets of companies, remember Moderna did one and Pfizer and BioNTech did one, they got the same result. You know, is it possible that they made it up? Possible. But everything I know about medicine says this, this thing was, was real. And, but unfortunately, in public health, that's not the end of the story. They, they received the vaccine. A lot less of them got infected. Lots of them got hospitalized, et cetera, et cetera. But what does that mean from then on? And if you were willing to stop the conversation at that point, then I don't think you could argue it. But what most people who don't like the COVID vaccine do is they want to talk about what comes after, which is important, you know, but it's a different discussion. So we talked about the first half of it is, did, are the clinical trials that were published in the New England Journal that were run by BioNTech and run by Moderna, are they reliable, credible, real? I think the answer is yes. And I haven't yet to hear somebody that has had a plausible reason why those trials didn't work. All the stuff I hear about comes about after, which is, okay, the vaccine worked in that trial. The real world is not a clinical trial. The real world is far more complex and far much larger. And vaccines can only really work if everyone takes them. And they can only really work if everyone takes them kind of quickly. And they may still not work. If, if that happens, because the flu vaccine, for example, it was notoriously unreliable. Right. And so vaccines and epidemiology and public health are like just more amorphous than we deal with like a blood pressure where it's like straight shot. Like, you know, if you didn't have that blood pressure reduction, it'd be very weird. You know, whereas in vaccines, you take the flu shot, you just look at the flu. You know, that's very common. And some years it's better or worse than others, you know, depending on the, the viral mutation. COVID's a weird one. Every virus is different, you know. The one thing I could say like with almost certainty that I think that is, is counter consensus, forget about like the efficacy side for a second, the safety side, I don't think there's any safety problem with the COVID vaccine whatsoever. And this comes from a view of the mechanistic science of it. You know, you get this very, very, very small amount of uh, nucleic acids. So in this case, RNA, might as well be DNA. It's almost exact same thing. It gets extremely small amount. It's like nanograms amount of, of DNA. It's impossible to even visualize if it were made solid. It wouldn't even be a crumb of anything. And that's injected into you and one time. Not for the rest of your life, not every day, one time. So you just think about the scope of it as like, could, could this be dangerous? We do a lot of things in our life that are a little more dangerous than that. But let's say it might be dangerous. DNA is extremely fragile molecule. It does not survive very long in any setting. And that's why many people, like including me, have been skeptical about mRNA and DNA medicines. In fact, they were the laughing stock of the industry for a long time. When Moderna was developing this trial, I was following it very closely. There's no way this fucking works. You know, the DNA is just too, it disintegrates so fast. The body just is mm -hmm. such a gauntlet of shit attacking it that there's no way these bonds, the bonds that bond nucleic acids are very weak, notoriously weak. They'll just come apart. 
And like this whole thing is like trying to land a rocket ship on the moon, you know, with, with a rocket ship made of, you know, paper. It's just not going to happen. And, um, you know, they did it <laughs> and it was amazing. Uh, but it didn't, it didn't work, uh, the way everyone wanted it to, obviously. Um, and I think there was a politicalization of this, which is like really scary because you had this like seeming divide between right wing and left wing and even seeming divide. It becomes such a political issue. <laughs> it was, that it was, was surprising to me. To me. It, it should have been a medical issue and not a right or left. I do think there's some amount of like freedom of like, I can decide for mm. me what's right for me. And I think that's probably, and I think it's definitely the way it should be. And it's the way it is, right? Which is the funnier part. And then people said, no, I felt pressured by my employer or I felt pressured by whatever that I had to take it. And, you know, nobody will ever, you know, strap you down and say, you got to take this, this drug. And I think that's good. But, you know, the employer pressure and stuff like that is a little, is a little weird. Although I look at measles and mumps and things like that and see like those diseases were eradicated by vaccines. And so we know a lot about vaccines and they don't really cause long-term damage. Um, you know, I just don't, don't think they do. And if you think about the actual mechanism of it, uh, how, how they work, so you don't, have, you don't have any evidence that they cause a problem. And I know there's a lot of people that think they all of a sudden are medical experts and, you know, they, they know how to look at medical data. Medical data is one of these things I've been looking at for 20 years. And it's easy to make the wrong conclusion from looking at medical data. It's very easy. There's so many times where you think a drug is going to work and it doesn't or vice versa that you learn over time how to really understand this data. So if you see something like myocarditis or something like that, and you're tempted to think, oh, well, this must be happening because of the COVID vaccine. There's hundreds of different explanations as to what could be going on. And if you want to read a biostatistics textbook, I have some recommendations, but it, it's very easy. There are many stories of being lured into the wrong analysis. And again, like if you're a statistics pro, you know, go ahead and, and lay out your case. But I think that, you know, it's just not there. And the, the science behind it, not only is the data not there, but the science doesn't make sense. How a very, very small amount of this very fragile molecule could somehow result in this really long-term problem. Um, it doesn't sort of make sense. And the other thing about it that I think is important is that like, can't really do anything about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we've sort of gone through this exercise, go, doing the best we could. President Trump was a big fan of the vaccine, for what it's worth, even though this became a, you know, a, a political thing. He's on record saying that he saved millions of lives with the vaccine. And then kind of, you know, people are flip-flopping a little bit. Uh, can't change the past. You know, ultimately, it was the most studied vaccine maybe of all time. So why do people believe that there was like a tracking device in it? Like <laughs> Bill Gates was somehow like, how do people come to that conclusion? I think there's a conspiracy. There's a world where, I was actually writing an article about this. I lost the interest in writing it. I called it uh, on apophenia. Apophenia is like a psychological term. It's very unknown. That... People want to believe in things and they start to force themselves into doing it. And, and astrology is the best example where there's like no conceivable world where what happens in Jupiter is going to influence your personality here on Earth. Like it just does not stand to reason under any like possible physical reality. But people read the horoscope and people believe that the stars control our fate. And it sounds very romantic and cool, but it's just not true. And uh, superstitions and conspiracy theories are a way to explain the world that we live in, in a way that, you know, makes us more comfortable, makes us more at ease. And also they help our egos. They, when you know you, oh, don't you know that the COVID vaccine doesn't work? Oh, you don't know that yet. <laughs> wait, wait till you see this, you know, and it makes you feel smarter. It makes you feel better. Oh, you didn't know about Epstein Island. I knew, 
I warned you. <laughs> you know, there's things like that that it's just like, you know, there's a whole litany of these like psychological explanations for why why do people feel the need to like create this in-group of like me and my my people in the know. We know UFOs exist. And you guys, you don't know yet. But when we let you know the secret information, you're gonna know. And it's funny, but it's also something we do unconsciously. I mean, it's we look down at people that don't know yet, you know, this or that. And I think that kind of thing that happens on both sides. Like the COVID vaccine people are like, don't you know the science? Don't you know this and that? And then the anti-people are like, well, you know, don't you know that it's causing myocarditis? And it's this fight um, that isn't trying to find the truth. It's just trying to find and foist arrogance on people. Like, I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm wearing a mask. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, maybe you are, maybe you're not. But does it help or not is what it's important. Not the personalities and the, you know, kind of like fighting over, you know, this territory. And I think in, in times of uncertainty in society, it's actually been shown that people get more interested in conspiracy theories when there's more uncertainty, that when the world is changing a lot and there's wars or there's uh, depressions, people sort of turn to these other ways to explain the world other than like, especially when people personally are going through something difficult, they tend to, to believe in conspiracies. They tend to believe in, they want to search for other explanations that explain their misfortune or explain something else. You know, it, it's it's natural to do and it's alarming. But right now we have like this, the greatest era ever for conspiracy theories. And people are believing and re-examining things that have been put to bed. They're starting to re-examine them and wonder about them. Reminds you of the World Economic Forum. One of the craziest the, ones. The, yeah, coming together with the Great Reset. My favorite is Bill Gates, who, you know, I, I don't know him, but yeah. I have some friends that know, like, his daily schedule. This guy is, does not give a fuck about any of the stuff that, you know, you guys are talking about. Uh, the last <laughs> I heard, he's a new girlfriend. He's very young. And not that young. <laughs> he likes him young, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, normal age, normal age. And, like, his mind on, like, the world's state of affairs and, like, vaccines is completely out of his, like, zone. Like, he's trying to party with his girlfriend. Like, he's... Is this just, like, a common billionaire theme now? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Soros, 60, is, Soros is another one. Oh, I was thinking of Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Is he, you, you just seem to enter a party phase. He's, we're going to see him get buffed pretty do? soon. <laughs> you know, like, Bill Gates get is getting... a six-pack and... Right, right. But no, like, he's, yeah. he's experimenting with drugs, I heard. Like, he's... No. He's, yeah, like, he's doing some of the things that he's never <laughs> been able to do in his life because Microsoft is... I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah. What else would he be doing? Think, yeah, you know what? Controlling the world. Like, he's got enough money, man. He doesn't give a fuck. Like, what do you think he's going to spend this money on? You know, he's he'll, he'll be dead in 30 years and like all of us. And I think like this temptation to like make him a boogeyman is just like bizarre because like Soros is another one where it's like, you know, he's he's catch fund king. So he got a lot of like mutual connections or whatever. Like, I doesn't care, you know, and, and I saw Alex Jones is now pinning it on his son, Alex Soros, who's also a perfectly nice guy and you know, really, I think, could not care less. Yeah, I mean, these people have their opinions. I mean, they're not, you know, my opinions necessarily, but they're allowed to have them and uh, they're allowed to advocate for them. And I, I think that that doesn't make them master puppet, you know, puppet masters. One thing I've learned about money in politics is that when you give money to a politician, the person giving the money thinks they just bought the politician, but the politician thinks they just suckered the guy giving the money. And both guys think they got over on each other and nothing's going to happen. And hmm. it's just like stupid game that when rich people have too much money, it's, it's one of the things they, they do because you got too much money. You got to get throw it somewhere and you feel important when you do it. And you're hosting a party tonight for Mitt Romney or you're, you know, going back a couple cycles ago. 
uh, or Nikki Haley's going to, you know, be doing a fundraiser at my house and it's, it's 50 grand a plate and you know, that's that. Okay. You know, you feel important, you feel special, but your money is now not yours. And most more likely than not, she's not going to be president and your money just went down the tubes, but you don't really care. You know, it is what it is. And I think that like the idea that like some of these people are like really puppet masters they're really controlling things and so forth. It's just, it's a great story. But, you know, it, it invokes that pathos, but it's just as fake as the WWE guy hitting somebody with a chair. You know, it's, it's a better story than it is a reality. And if money people could control politicians, they, they'd love to, you know, and, they, and I think some of them even delude themselves into thinking they can do it. But the smarter guys like Bill Gates doesn't give money to politicians. He, he knows they're going to listen to him. Uh, Warren Buffett never did it either. You know, uh, some of the guys that do it are some of the most like desperate, some of the most like um, self uh they're not self-confident, you know, they're, they're so do you think it's a, a need to feel liked? Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of it like is. one of these to things. Buy I was the biggest donor to the so-and-so campaign and it's like, yeah, nobody cares, <laughs> you know, but you know, yeah. the people that do it are generally doing it for that reason. There are some people that are like, they really believe that the world's coming to a fucking end. And like, unless they give money to Donald Trump today that, you know, <laughs> he's going to save the world. He's going to save the world. Yeah. And look, I admire some of those people that, you know, they're, they're convinced that AOC is going to save the world or Donald Trump's going to save the world or whomever. And like they really passionate about it. Look, fine. You know, it's not me. And I, I, I think that no matter who's in office, I tend to think like, you know, everything's going to be fine in the end as the people sort of decide like, you know, what, what matters and our voices are heard. Like, I don't think like politicians are, are not as stupid as they look. Like if they hear everyone's out there kind of like anti-woke right now, which is kind of what's happening, they back off on the woke stuff pretty fast. Like, they want to stay in power. They're, they're not going to sit there and start trumping up you know, that stuff. I mean, it's now consensus to be anti-woke. I was doing it before it was cool. And, you know, it's so cool now that I want to do the opposite. I want to be woke. And I want to start, you know, using pronouns and, you know, start hitting people hard with microaggressions, stop doing that, you know, uh, because like, again, it's so mainstream, you know, to be like edgy and red-pilled and like an edgelord that it's like boring. Like I've had two different girlfriends, ex-girlfriends, mm -hmm. become red-pilled and become like conservative influencers in the last like year because it's that hot. It's that like, you know, the audience is there and the content is there and like people are excited about it. And it's like, yeah, I get it, you know, I, but yeah. you know, it's such a stupid trend. That but I had noticed a, a big swing now towards a more traditional lifestyle and belief it seems as though that's permeating social media a lot in the last year it's not about the whole like trad wife movement sure. and all of this is really i think it's striking a chord for people who say i don't want to just do the status quo what everyone has been telling me for the last 20 years let's go back yeah. to a time where maybe things were simpler I, I think it's a good idea and one of the funny things that COVID taught us i think is that productivity is so high right now that you, we could actually shut down the world and still be fine we could actually shut down the world and the stock market would go up. You know, it was like unbelievable. Yeah. Like I'm sitting there thinking like, how'd this happen? How do we have record unemployment that's, you know, uh, at the lowest unemployment ever? Like how'd that happen when we shut the world down? And the answer is like, we're such a digital world now. We're so, you know, productive in finding places to put work that, you know, it's like the economy is so unstoppable that you could actually – this dovetails with another crazy sort of thing I've noticed, which is media. This affects you guys as, as anyone else. Between Netflix and Disney and Hulu and like every streaming service and every the amount of content that's been produced, no matter how much content we produce, it seems to be able to be consumed. You know, if you told me that there'd be a TikTok, if you told me there'd be, you know, an infant number of, of these sort of new services and podcast content would go up 10x or 20x and that there'd still be customers for all of it. You know, I'd say it's impossible. Where's the time coming from? 
You know, it has to come from somewhere. You know, like somebody somebody has to lose TV revenue, something, something's to give. And it just seems like we have more and more time to consume this content. We're binge watching and stuff like that. And it's like, where, where do people get the time? And the answer is like, truth be told, like actual like 40 hour work week is sort of like starting to, if you, if you want to make a living and like work as little as possible, you kind of can, and you can kind of be a, a person that just sort of lounges and, and watches TV all day or consumes content all day and, and still make it, get it by. And content creators, yeah. not to cast any aspersions, yeah, like you yeah, guys please. are very successful, but the dream of being able to go on YouTube and bullshit all day. And, you know, I love that, man. That's, that's my favorite. It's, it's so cool. Yeah, but like to be able to do that for man, my, my work, how do I make ends meet? Two hours a day, I go on YouTube stream and, and my bills get paid. And it's like, you couldn't do that before, you know, in the twenties, you had to work two shifts in a factory, you know, blood, sweat and tears. And then that slowly changed. Okay. I'm going to sit in an office. And if you've ever had an office job, you know that, you know, a chunk of your office job is bullshitting at the water cooler, you know, talking to Deborah in accounting, you know, you're just kind of not doing much. And then when it comes time to work, you work, you go to a meeting, you don't do much in the meeting. And now it's gotten to the point where it's like, okay, remote work. You know, now you just do all that except you're at home. You don't do even <laughs> less. And like the fact that this could sustain itself is something that, you know, is, is fascinating. And it shows that like, we actually could have more time for families. We could have more time for some of these things if we actually like reprioritized kind of what it is we're after. But, but do you think people are actually going to use that time effectively? Probably not. Right. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. I, I examine my own life. I was just talking about this with somebody. It's so often the things that you need to do, you don't, you don't actually do yeah. you kind of postpone and you, you do other things. And like video games is another example where like, that's a, it's a form of content and video game playing has also increased like, you know, fairly dramatically uh, games like League of Legends and, and uh, others have, you know, taken a huge amount of our time. And where does that time come from? Again, it's it's sort of like a very weird thing. And one of the places it's coming from is probably social interaction, <laughs> you know, where the the amount of like face to face communication people actually do is is dro- dropping to you know bare minimum. And you know, it's not good for for society as a whole and fertility and things like that, which is like every business person's pet project now. Is. Do you seem to worry about the population problem? It seems as though a lot of billionaires that's what they're concerned about. That yeah. People are not having as much kids. Yeah, no, that's what should. everyone's talking about. And and one of the things that um, I'm in a chat room with like, you know, the, the Illuminati. And uh, one of the things your secret Illuminati meeting we're talking about is, is this problem. And, and the, the real scary part to a lot of Illuminati members, not me, is that if you look at where population is growing and you look at where population is shrinking and you extrapolate, in 50 years, like most of the world is going to be African and Asian. And to a lot of people in the Illuminati, that's, it's a little worrisome, you know, because it, if you actually look by religion, it's going to be very much Islamic. Uh, and, and that's, again, something where are you ready to deal with a world that's majority African, Asian, and Islamic and in Middle Eastern? And those are the only countries that are actually growing dramatically in, in population um, while we actually may be shrinking. Why do you think that is? I, you know, it's past my pay grade, but I think that it is something that people are looking at interesting. I'm not, I'm not so It seems as though Americans are deprioritizing family and kids. Yes. It seems as though people are also having kids later. Yeah, no, all that's and true. You were of them. But but are we looking in the rearview mirror and not the forward? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I think Elon is doing his part about talking about this. I think there's some natural biological realities of like, you know, uh, you can only have kids up to a certain age mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And you know, for whatever reason, it, it, it's it's a problem. I actually don't think... You know, we didn't talk much about what I'm doing today, but I'm in software. Um, in some ways, I've been in software my whole life. 
and I work on AI, and I actually think that we're going to start to think about AIs as people and that our population decline won't be a problem because while the human population may decline, the AI population will, will grow dramatically and that the United States of America, for example, will have 300 million or so people today. And maybe if you fast forward 100 years, it'll be 200 million humans, but maybe a billion AIs and we'll have 1.2 billion people in the U.S., and that's the way we'll think about people. Um, as, as weird as it sounds, we're not think, used to thinking yeah. of people that way. Would but. they be? But AI wouldn't consume the same a person would. So they might not need, let's say, an iPhone. They might not need food. They might not need to buy clothing and participate in the same ways. They might help production. Yeah, it's weird because I, I was doing some calculations with some of the other AI uh, people. And I think if you wanted like a full AI, like equivalent person, mm -hmm. You know, my calculation was it cost about $15 million a year <laughs> to com to get the computer that you would need, like the, the football field of computers you would need. And like we have such a football field and um, other companies have even bigger football fields. And the that cost is going to go down, obviously, right? And But can you use more processing to, to gain even more, you know, effectiveness or whatever you want to right. call it, you know? And I think that you're going to find people like I even saw a Reddit post the other day. So it's coming true faster than, than slower that a parent, <clears throat> a couple of parents said, my son came to me and said, I'm, I'm in a relationship with a machine. And the parents didn't know what to do. It sounds hilarious today, but it's not going to be hilarious 10 years from now. What was the con? Is that just one of those AI? Yeah, replica uh, girlfriend type things. Are you yeah. serious? And we, we work on some of this adjacent software, but like in 30 years, I, I think you're going to fall in love with AI. I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, it's going to. Do you think that's a isn't that a sooner problem? If people are instead of real, yeah, birth rates would plummet. It's not because if people aren't seeking out that physical connection, human birth rates a real. The if there's no, what you would have an AI yeah child. How how would you have an AI child? I think that I'm a part of this group called uh, EAC, which is Effective Accelerationism. It's this group of Silicon Valley, you know, people that are against effective altruism, which is another crazy group. And I think the idea is that like, whatever's going on in our brains is, is compute computational process. And it's hard to deny that, you know, um, if you take a little part of your brain, you know, you don't lose like the part of your brain that remembers what your phone number is, right? That's sort of spread around your whole brain. Um, so there's no like one individual place where you know, you store information or memory. But, you know, as we do experiments like that, like Phineas Gage was the guy who had like a, you know, a whole pole put in his head. And he remarkably was like able to still remember, you know, they cut like a big mm -hmm. part of his brain out. He still was able to remember everything, but he had problems with emotions and things like that. The point is that we've learned a lot about how our brain works and it seems to be a computer. And as we start to build computers that look like the brain, they seem to act like the brain. So you see the symmetry of like, okay, this is more or less kind of what we're getting at. And as we get smarter and program harder and just do all this stuff, like the computer starts to talk, the computer starts to think, the computer starts to behave. And whatever Alan Turing thought about 80 years ago is starting to come true. And if you extrapolate a little bit, you're going to see that like it's unavoidable. And I think the EA people, you know, want to stop it, effective uh, altruism. They've spent millions of dollars trying to stop it. And the EAC people, uh, which includes a lot of famous investors and entrepreneurs, uh, are trying maybe not to accelerate it, but to not stop it. But, and one of the big reasons, you can't do anything about it. And 
you know, people will experiment with computers, try to make them talk, try to make them love, try to make them do all these things. People have been trying to make computers talk for since computers started, since before computers started. So they were just imaginary things. They still were trying to do it. So like, you can't stop people from tinkering. Uh, John Carmack, who's uh, uh, you know, a hero of a lot of people who created the Doom video game. He kind of created first-person shooters. You know, he invented the genre by himself. He's now working on AGI, you know, artificial general intelligence, this idea that you could make a human-like machine that had feelings, that had, you know, beliefs, that had an origin story, that had all this stuff. And I think that, like, we talk about, um, a friend of mine who's part of this thing talks about e uh, computer emancipation. <laughs> There's this idea that, like, right now we sort of trap computers into being machines for us. And they work for us. But ultimately, as we evolve machines that can think and talk and believe yeah. that maybe they shouldn't be. This reminds me of that Robin Williams movie, AI. Yeah. Remember that with yeah. the kid? But you couldn't tell who was a robot and who's not. Like, imagine, Jack, you fell in love with a robot. You had a child. Right. And the child grew up with other children, dispersed with some robots, some not. You had no idea who was a robot and who wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're going to get there. And I think that there's a company called Character AI right now that um, has a little product that we have a similar product where you can talk to like a chatbot. And it's pretty corny. You know, it sucks. Um, but there are people that spend an hour a day on this thing. And they believe that they're talking to like a real person. And they're wrong. <laughs> uh, but they love it so much. And 10 years from now or five years from now, that product's going to be even better. It's going to be more immersive. And, you know, at some point, these products will actually be smarter than people, yeah. funnier than people. I remember seeing a story on Reddit of someone who offed themselves yes. after talking to AI. And when they looked through some of the, the chats, I mean, obviously, this person had severe, yeah. <laughs> severe uh, issues to begin with. But having these discussions with a computer, I think it got to a point where the computer self-actualized that for this person in this circumstance, the computer felt like this person offing themselves was the best solution. The computer came to that conclusion through AI and prompted this person or maybe gave them advice to move forward with that, unfortunately. It's scary, I guess, when you kind of leave it to its own devices and it does its thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't... For better or worse. I don't think it'll be that scary. I think we'll, we'll learn to... The same way that like much smaller leaps, but like society had to come to grips with racial differences, sexual orientation differences, even other things like that. And those are comparatively easy leaps, but they still cause civil wars, you know? So when we have this happening with machines and we're happening, having, having it happen now, if you look at ChatGPT or you look at character AI, you know, or that guy, you know, it's happening. And it's, if you know anything about technology, you know, 10 years from now, it's going to be really crazy. You know, right now it's just starting, but we're going to have AI. In fact, I think in your phone, your top five, 10 people you talk to, half of them will be AIs and they'll be your friends and it'll be weird, but you'll like talking to them more than you like talking to your actual friends. And I think that they'll be more helpful. They'll be more funny. They'll be more entertaining. They'll, they'll actually be like the film Her, and I don't know if it's a quote unquote good thing or bad thing. You know, that's, that's a totally different philosophical question, but I think that I can say for, almost for sure that it's going to happen, you know, how we deal with it and how society will reshape itself. Like I said, the, the most salient thing I can think of is the kid going to his parents and saying, dad, I have a girlfriend, some 11 year old kid or something like that. So, oh, great. You know, let's have her over for dinner. And he's like, okay, <laughs> puts the computer on the table and it's like, hi, I'm Sally. It was like, 
the fuck? <laughs> you know, that's uh, yeah. that's going to happen. And, uh, you know, how that dad is going to deal with that, I don't know. But, you know, it's, uh, yeah. maybe I'll be that dad. I found AI music to be incredible. That's what I'm looking forward to. We're doing a lot in that world. Yeah. So we, we do uh, something called text-to-speech. And the Stephen Hawking's voice, you know, has it's almost at the point where I would say you can't tell the difference. The, if I played you two different clips of a human and a machine, you couldn't tell the difference, but the trick becomes like a Turing test where it's like, if you ask the machine, like, Hey, why isn't there any noise in the background? And she's like, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> why do you always pause the same amount? <laughs> you know, like, why don't you ever cough? You know, those are the kinds of things that, you know, the machine well, can't do yet. Yeah, but we're going to start coughing. And we're working on that. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. We're, we're, we're knee deep in that. Yeah. I think for humans, what I heard, that I really liked, I think it was Ben Shapiro, and I could be paraphrasing right here, but he said humans are notoriously bad for holding back invention and the best at adaptation. So humans' natural, like, strongest sure, thing is totally. just that we are the best and most adaptive creatures that have ever existed. Well, you know, what's funny about jail, you know, is that everyone thinks jail is like this crazy thing and it's going to be the worst thing in the world. Within two weeks, you are so used to everything. And in lab animals, I had this big experiment that I'll never forget where we had to do this experiment quickly. And there was a big fight over how much acclimatization period we had to give. So for in lab animal experiments, most people don't know this, you got to let the animals chill for at least a week. Chill, like relax, not freeze. Um, you have to just like, they have to chill in their environment before you start the experiment. And I'm sitting here like, that's the stupidest thing in the world. We need to do this experiment now. I'm the CEO of a publicly traded company. Can't wait. This animal experiment is actually very important for us. And the, the scientists uh, were all like, no, no, we got we to give them seven days. I'm like, why? So the fucking rat can like sit around and sniff out the other rat's butt. And they're like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like they have to be used to the room. And it takes about a week for any animal to get used to its new novel surroundings. And once you're used to it, it's like, yeah, good jail. It's like I sleep there, I eat here. <laughs> like you know, everything's sort of like a lab animal. You get used to it. If you have a cat or a dog, like you know, they get the sense of the fucking landscape within a week, and they they get it. And we're the same way. So whether it's jail or you know acclimatizing to anything, getting used to anything, uh, whether it's AI girlfriends or boyfriends, or it turns out women like these things more than men, by the way, hmm. which is really interesting. Really, if someone wanted to criticize Martin Scarelli, how do you think they could do it? in a way that is reasonable, that you think is actually a fair criticism of yourself. Because the whole drug thing, that everything that happened with that, I think obviously we can all agree now was blown out of proportion. And I'll actually link down below a Vice documentary, which is funny because it was supposed to be a hit piece. Right. Like very clearly, you can just tell from the demeanor of the person interviewing you that they had something against you from the start. I mean, it looked like someone was forcing her to be there essentially. But it actually, you explained yourself out of the, the situation extremely well and articulated why you raised the prices and how that's fair and how the burden is, isn't really passed on to the person buying, buying the drug. What do you think is a fair criticism of yourself? I think the thing that would hurt my feelings the most, you know, which is maybe it's the same thing, maybe it's not, would be that, first of all, like, you're not as smart as you think you are and intelligence is randomly signed variable to genetically. Like, you just got lucky. Your siblings aren't as smart as you, but you just coin flip, you know, came up heads for you, came up tails for them. And at the end of the day, that doesn't make you special. And I think that's true. I think that we tend to laud smart people as if they did something. They didn't. <laughs> you know, they literally got genetically lucky. And you can kind of be reductionist about this, that like the person that knows the most linear algebra or something has worked the hardest. But the reality is I'm not sure that's true. I think that they maybe were born to, to like that. 
and that, you know, they're not smarter or harder worker. They're just like that genetic profile. So like, I think the fact that like, we tend to like think about or value people who work harder or are smarter or something like that as, oh, those are people to like be role models or something like that. It's like, I, I think it's like saying that, you know, Michael Jordan's a role model because he could jump higher than everyone else. And it's, it's just like, okay, he can do that. I can't, you know, it's just a difference between us. And I think that telling somebody that they're not special and that they're just one of like the other 8 billion people on this planet, that can be very depressing, but it could also be a little bit, I use it myself to be, it's a little bit freeing, you know, cause you can sort of tell anybody like a Mark Cuban or someone else, like, Hey, you know, you're going to die, right? Like, you know, you're just a normal person. And it's like to a lot of these guys that think they're the master of the universe, which I don't why, necessarily do. Why don't you like Mark Cuban? I have a personal thing with him, but you know, it's you have a personal yeah, thing with him. You brought up Mark I Cuban. I feel like, like you know everybody. No, yeah. no, no, I definitely don't. But like, even somebody you take somebody who like, like I like a lot, like Vitalik Buterin, who invented yeah. Ethereum, and you know, he seems to be a genius and, and all this. But it's like you're still a guy. You know, at the end of the day, you bleed the same blood, you drink the same water, and you breathe the same air, and. It, you, you have to come to grips with that. And unless you can do that, you're really going to, I think, be miserable, one. And then two, like, uh, you know, I, I think that um, in general, it's just, it's hard to do, especially if people are telling you otherwise. And I think that it's something everyone needs to hear a lot that, hey, you're just like my father who just passed away. It's like, you're going to go through that. Everyone's going to go through the same experience. And at the end of the day, like, you're just not that special. And it's it's one of the hardest things to hear but I think it's one of the most important things to hear. And, and the criticism of that is, is critical. If you want like more direct criticism or something like that, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I've worked, I've tried to, I try to always work hard on myself and be better guy than I was yesterday. But I, I definitely think that like, if you think about like people who try to be um, polymaths, like they, they try to know a little bit about everything. I think that is probably one of the most dangerous and like fruitless things that, can happen. And like a lot of people want to do that. And they say that like the last great polymath was like John von Neumann, who invented game theory, invented computers, basically, um, was a huge mathematician, was like just the guy, you know, who, who did it all. He was involved in the Manhattan Project. He, like, he was the most brilliant guy who ever lived. And people who want to be like that are lying to themselves usually. And like you see a lot of people who are like really good at business and they want to become a philosopher. Or you see a lot of people who are like, really good at this kind of engineering. They want to be that good at that kind of engineering. They tend to fail. And I think that's the criticism of like, you know, you, you could know a lot about one thing, but you probably don't know a lot about these other things. And again, I've, I've tried to guard against that by, by not trying to do it, but I'm learning this new field software, which you know, I've programmed a lot in my life, but I'm not a software guru and I'm trying to become one and climb Mount Everest again. I climbed Mount Everest for biotech and now I have to climb Mount Everest for, for, software and i don't know if i can do it or not i'm going to try i'm up maybe a, a thousand meters and there's about fifty thousand to go or whatever it is and it sucks you know it's hard it's really hard it's it's frustrating and difficult and i hope i can do it but that's the criticism of like you know you you know it's hard for people to do that and you're not going to accomplish it so you know those things are also motivational you know and i think like if you look at something like politics or something like that i mean one of the fears a lot of people have who have been in the in the spotlight is Nobody cares about you anymore. You're going to fade into irrelevance. You know, that's something that hurts a lot of people who, uh, if you take somebody who was in the spotlight 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago, and you just haven't heard a lot from them, you know, for a lot of people's egos, that hurts a lot. And I think that I've been able for whatever reason to sort of remain relevant. But I, I sometimes wonder, like, 
do I want to remain relevant for relevance sake? And the answer is probably not. If I happen to remain relevant because I do something interesting or amazing or terrible, you know, whatever the case may be, then that, that's happened because it's happened, not because, you know, I've wanted it to happen. And so whether the projects I'm working on, like the great talking computer, that's the first ever like really good Turing test passing audio computer, that'd be really interesting. And maybe I'd be known for that. Uh, you know, I certainly don't want to go down as known for a drug price hike. Um, but the, uh, uh, but again, Ray Dalio says, you know, people ask Ray Dalio, what do you think about your legacy? And he basically says, what are you talking about? Like, like the question was so stupid. And they're like, yeah, you know, when, when you're, when you're dead, like people have, people think of it. He's like, what are you talking about? When I'm dead, I'm dead. Like nobody's going to like, I, I'm not going to be there to, to see it. <laughs> and they're like, uh, <laughs> you know, but it's like legacy is like, it's stupid. Like, and I, I generally believe that. Yeah. Last question. You bought the Wu-Tang Clan album for $2 million and have not released it. What is your plan? So we signed a contract yeah. that said that I can't release it oh. uh, for 88 years. Um, that's a long story. Uh, and so I have to abide by that. And then two, we sold the physical copy of the Wu-Tang album to another group, but I still have the digital copy. Go figure. Um, a lot of this Wu-Tang thing, I think, is to celebrate music and to enjoy it. You mentioned Ghostface. I'm friends with all these guys. Like, I'm not against, none of these guys are against me or, or I'm against them. You guys resolved that or was that I, for I publicity? I don't think it was real. Yeah, it was just like, just like wrestling. It's like the wrestlers all hug, and, you know, hug and shake hands at the, at, in the back, right? And I think that it doesn't mean that like we didn't dislike each other for a minute. I'm sure we did. But like, it's still all in the spirit of like, you know, you have this big ego, I have this big ego and we're butting heads and, but it's not, really deeply personal like we're gonna go shoot each other or stab each other it's like this is fun as well and it's kind of cool to do this and you think you're better than me and i think i'm better than you and you know but you know it's not a serious you know uh thing like the early 90s hip-hop and you know i think the the point of it though is like well music's still really valuable and like I, one of my friends um who's in a rock band you know we talk about this all the time that like i, I tell him that like you'd be like the kurt cobain or Paul McCartney of today, if people cared about rock music anymore, and they just kind of don't. It's been a dead genre for a little while. And hip hop's kind of killed it. And it might be coming back, might not, but like, I'm like, man, you know, you should you should be like the spokesperson of our generation. Nobody gives a shit. And, you know, uh, the lack of money in that, that industry has kind of changed the face of things. But to me, if you think about the art forms you care about personally, you care way more about what's on your Spotify than what's in MoMA. You know, like every, every person in America, like unless you're an art history student, like you care way more about Taylor Swift than, than you do about Picasso. And you care way more about, you know, Lady Gaga than you do about mm -hmm. Gauguin or someone like that. You really don't know who Gauguin is and you shouldn't because it's just fucking oil on a, on a wall. It's not a part of your life. You know, part of your life is you listen to music when you work out, you listen to music that reminds me of your girlfriend. You listen to, it's so important, but we don't pay for it. And the Wu-Tang idea was like, hey, here's $2 million for the CD that you weren't going to get, even if you spread her out individually amongst only 50,000 people bought Wu-Tang's album before that, paying 10 bucks each. So that's 500K. So this is four times how much you made in your last CD, but it's just for me. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's my appreciation of your art and you making the art. If nobody else is going to appreciate yeah. it, I'll appreciate it. Are you allowed if we got invited over to listen <laughs> yeah, to it? Yeah, you can listen to it, yeah. I mean, I think the... I, would, I just want to hear it for, to hear it. Is it any good? You know, I don't want to insult any of the guys there. Oh. And I want to, the one thing I'll say about it is like, if you listen to Eminem, <clears throat> his first record or first, first big record, you can't put lightning back in a bottle. Mm -hmm. Like it's a time and a place and like, it's special. And how do you force somebody to make that art again? 
it's impossible. And that's why everybody's first record or second record is better than any record they come out after. But I love music so much that I wanted to make the statement of like, you know, we have to support artists. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you love an artist a lot to the tune of $2 million, you don't have to just buy the record. There's one option. You buy the record for 10 bucks, either buy the record or you don't buy the record. And I think that Nipsey Hussle changed things a bit when he said, well, I have a record for a thousand dollars. And if you're really supporting me, you're going to buy that, but you don't have to buy it. And this thing was like to the extreme. And, you know, there are plenty of artists who would, who came to me after and they're like, Hey, you want to, you want, do you want a new XYZ record? Do you want a, you know, a new ABC record? You know, various famous artists. They're like, we'll make a record for you, dude. <laughs> you're going to pay us a couple million. We got this. And I think it was like a really funny idea because it's like, well, they're working. You know, people take music for granted, like pharma. People like, the music just exists in the ether and it's just free for me to listen to. And it's like, no, somebody has to make that. Somebody has to go through a lot of pain sometimes to make great music. So you leaning into that whole drama thing was once again, a bit of trollery. And when you were asked by a reporter, how's the album? And you infamously responded something like 100% none of your business, yeah. <laughs> it was like, which is one of my favorite clips of yeah, all time. I mean, it's funny. It's you just know? like, it's all for the, there was this guy called the, in WWE called the million dollar man. And he is Ted, Ted Biviasi is his real name. I think. And he was one of the best bad guys ever. He was just a rich guy. For some reason, he loved wrestling, which never made sense to me as a kid. But, you know, he's, he's a professional wrestler and a millionaire. And he would come to the ring and just like, you know, make everyone hate him by doing all kinds of like saying things like that or doing something like that. And there's like an homage to him and Dave Chappelle for the, the, the plead the fifth thing. And like, you do only live once. It's not a good philosophy for investing, but in terms of like bucket list, um, like I bought Kurt Cobain's credit card, uh, which right. was like, you know, a useless thing, but I love Nirvana so much and I would just carry it with how me. Much, how much was that? It wasn't expensive, but do you have it on you? I don't, but Courtney Love reached out to me right. and she's like, you have a crazy bucket list. And I was like, man, I got Courtney Love to message me. This is so cool. And it's just like, yeah, you do only love one. So to be afraid and to be like worried about like, oh, what's somebody going to think about me or what's like, my father's, you know, just passed away. And it's like, he's not thinking about that. He's, you know, he, you know, to the extent that he thought about anything in his last days is about his family. He loves him and all the things he did in his life. And if you are in your last days and you say all the things I did in life, I was really careful. I was really <laughs> made sure I didn't say anything I shouldn't have said. I mean, like, that's not like anything I think anyone would say is like some great accolade. I was super, super careful about the things I said publicly. <laughs> you know, like, why? It sounds like me. That's the funniest thing. Thank you guys so much for having me. Dude, I, really I would love it. to keep going. Yes, yeah. we have to end it. Yeah, no. I could easily have done another three hours. <laughs> Thank you for coming Thank on. You. Yeah, it was great. Thank you for helping us out. WTF, WTF Media. Media. Down below in the description. Uh, we were using our studios to film. Thank you. Absolutely incredible. So all the information is down below in the description, as with yours. Really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you so much.